And as they're arguing, I remember seeing my dad throw my mom down the stairs. And I remember my mom flying down the stairs. I mean, you know, everything turns into like a slow motion kind of thing. And and as she's going down the stairs, her arm went into the rail. And as her arm went into the rail, I started to see her arm break into little pieces. You know, and as uh, she hits the bottom, so there's two sets of stairs and a little forehead on the bottom. She hits the bottom, and I remember looking at her, and it, what it reminded me of, reminded me of was like a rag, uh, one of those raggedy Ann dolls. Yeah. She was all broken up, and and uh, you know I'm thinking he killed her, you know, and so, but my mom was, you know, she was just as bad as my dad, you know, at, at, you know I I remember another time when my mom and my dad were arguing, and we we're upstairs also. There's a bathroom there. My dad and my mom go into the bathroom, and I could hear them arguing. And my mom pulls out a gun to shoot my dad inside the bathroom. And my dad grabs the gun with his hand, so she shoots him in the head. Wow. You know? And so they were just as violent. It just didn't, it didn't matter. You know what I mean? It was just a, uh, you know, you were lucky if nothing happened. So (laughs) if there was, you know, drinking every day. My mom drank every day. Uh, Pastor, so you had mentioned, I want to you to talk about that incident, but I was trying to find a space to come in here. Uh, you had mentioned that when you were a little kid and you were in the gang, you were so crazy out there that they greenlit you. Yep. Uh, can you talk about that before you talk about the incident? Okay, well, it happened in two different situations. See, when, when I was uh, 12 years old, we had uh, the guys that, we, a bunch of us had gotten together. And um, we had, uh, you know, started a little clique. I can't even remember the name of it. They had to come to the house to kill me, the guys from Harbor City, from my neighborhood that I lived in, because of that. There was a guy named Casper that every time he'd see me, he would tell me that he was going to kill me, you know. And so at that moment in my life, you know, I share with you that my dad was in prison. My dad had gotten out of prison. And when my dad got out of prison, he came home, he had some money, he bought me some shoes, bought some stuff for me and my brother, my sister, my dad took off. Him and my mom were no longer uh, together. And he took off to Douglas, Arizona. And, you know, I was being threatened so many times. I was being jumped. I had been beaten up by these gang members in Harbor City. So many things had happened that at that point in my life, uh, one day we got this guy drunk. Now, I'm already living with a woman. So she's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 13. She's already 17. You know, she's, you know, she's almost an adult. She's also a gang member from Barrio Avenues, which is a different gang. And he was actually setting it on the table. He was getting ready to set it on the table. And, uh, and as he was setting it on the table, my homeboy had a sarape over him. And he threw the sarape up in the air. And when he threw it up, he pulled up a sarap. And it wasn't, a, you know, your typical sawed-off shotgun. It was a, a sawed-off 22. That's what it was. And when he pulled, the, what happened was he beat him to the punch. He pulled the trigger, but the bullet got jammed. Mm. So when he threw the sarape and picked it up, my stepfather just automatically grabbed the gun and started to unload. So I'm standing behind him as he's shooting at him. And so my homeboy has... Pants on, waraches, no shirt on. And I could actually see the bullets going in and out of his body. You know, I remember walking in there. and They had her laying on this metal table. They had shot half of her face off. 
I remember looking at her from a distance. My dad had gone with me. He started to yell at me and tell me to go, go see your mother. And he started to push me. And as he started to push me that way, I remember I said to him, and so I just became very bitter, more than what I already was, hateful. I became more violent to the point that I didn't care if, if I died. <clears throat> I didn't care if I killed someone. It just it didn't matter to me anymore. Right after that, I had gotten into a argument with my brother-in-law, and I slit his throat eight times, and uh, I ended up in, in jail, and I remember being in jail and waking up and not knowing what happened, you know, because I was, my mind was just warped, I was just messed up, <laughs> and I remember when their guns sounded empty, click, click. I came out with a gun in each hand and I ran up to the car and I started to shoot inside the car. And I remember the, cause they were young kids, they were young men. They were screaming and they're going around in circles in the middle of the street and I'm running with the car. My brother-in-law's with me He's also shooting at the car, and they take off. No remorse, no fear, no nothing. The consequences. It didn't mean anything. Because at this time of my life, I was already numb. I didn't feel no pain, you know. And I remember walking up to him. And I remember, these were the words he said to me. He says, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know what it means. He says, but you know what it means. And God knows what it means. And so he leans over and he says something in my ear. I don't even know what he said. I can, uh, to this day, I don't remember. I wish I did. He said something in my ear. And when he said these words... I remember getting a flashback of all the bad things I had done. Like in a second, everything. And then I remember just standing back because it was like real quick, you know. But everything, it was everything was clear. And I remember looking at him and then in my mind I thought, and if you do, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And when I said those words... I remember something hitting me in the back of my knees and I fell on the ground and I started to worship God. At that moment, I remember everybody, I mean, I couldn't tell you how many people, I looked like, a, looked like I had the football, you know what I mean? Everybody's piled up praying for me. And I wept. And I wept. Until all that pain was gone. Until all that from when I was a little boy, seven years old, was gone. 
Welcome back to another episode of LifeSpeaksPodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We want to give a shout out to the Choosing Hope Foundation. Go to the website, uh, go to the website ChoosingHopeFoundation.org. See what they're doing over there, man. Wrapped around prison ministries, just doing big things out there. Check it out if you want to donate or if you just want to see or if you just want to just check it out and see what can happen. Hey, just see it. See what can happen. Check out LifeSpeaksPodcast.com and be up on the info about our podcast. And thank you so much for watching. If you want to donate, you have an option on there. Next, the Potter's House GRA.com with uh, our church, Universal uh, Church in Universal City, Greater Randolph area, 2025 Universal City Boulevard. Come and check us out see how God's moving. Let's check out the website. Once again, it's ThePottersHouseGRA.com. And, man, just see how God is just moving over there. And it is awesome. Like, subscribe to our podcast, ring the bell so you can get all the notifications. And thank you so much for joining us. Okay, well, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, uh, Guicho Breach, a.k.a. Luis Perez, uh, or vice versa. Uh, we have a very special guest here with us today. Uh, we have my good friend, uh, Pastor Frank Romero, and uh, he's going to be sharing uh, uh, his testimony, his life, and we're just very blessed to have him on the podcast today, so we want to welcome welcome, Pastor. Thank you very much for having me here. So um, I've known Pastor Frank for uh, quite a bit of years. I was first introduced to his ministry when I saw him preaching uh, in the El Paso church, Pastor Paul Stevens church, and um, and was just captivated by his testimony, uh, the things that he was preaching and stuff. And so I reached out to him, got him to come preach for me, and uh, he's actually preaching for me right now at Revival. And so we thought it would be a good idea to have him do the podcast and share uh, and, you know, and, and not in a preaching format, but his testimony, because there's so much there's so much to it. There's so much power in it. And I believe that many people can benefit from it. And so and so uh, I we asked him if he would do it. and He said yes. And so we're blessed to have you here today. Um, so I want to start, uh, we, we talked a little bit about it, but I want to go back and you shared a little bit about it during the service, um, you know, to your youth, um, as far as you can remember being a child and what was life like growing up. And then, you know, we'll, we'll ask some questions as we go through, but just take us back to your life back in the day, little kid and the experiences and what led up to your life today. So, you know, at a very young age, I grew up in a in a decent home. It, it, you know, parents married. You know, father, mother. You know, good parents. Um, parents. You know, we we my my dad worked for American Airlines. My my mom worked uh, at different places, and uh, we owned our own restaurant. We we had a good life. You know what I mean? We'd go on vacations. We go to Mexico. We go to Disneyland. We went to all these places. We did what a normal family would do. But uh, as time went by, the more uh, money that my parents started to make, the more they started to drink. You know, they're, they're starting to hang around with different kinds of people. Different things are happening. And, and, and so, uh, you know, they're, they're um, taking advantage of it. And before you know it, there's uh, adultery. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, all kinds of stuff. My, my mom's uh, cheating on my dad. My dad's cheating on my mom. And because of all that, there, there, there's they, my dad becomes very abusive, 
And uh, my dad was the type of person that uh, when he would start to drink, he'd uh, grab shot glasses with his hand and break them until they would cut his hands and he would just bleed, you know. And my mom was uh, <clears throat> very violent also. She, um, she didn't care what she had to do. I, I remember a couple of times my dad, uh, you know, yelling at her and uh, she would hide behind a wall. I mean, they'd be drunk and she'd hide behind a wall and grab a big bottle of Bacardi and just hit him over the head with it, knock him out, you know. And so as things started to get worse, uh, they started to uh, lose everything they had. They lost, my dad lost his job at American Airlines, my mom, you know, they lost their house, they had a couple of houses, they lost their business. Uh, and so um, we ended up living in the projects, we ended up moving, we lived in, in Compton and from Compton we ended up moving to drinking all these things they lost the business yes. now what happens they, they, they lose the business they lose the, the houses uh, they we end up moving to the projects we have nothing so we end up moving to government projects as we we move into these projects uh, you know things just get worse they escalate uh, to the point where uh, my dad's getting even more violent trying to commit suicide um you know, my mom, my mom's always gone. She's always cheating on him and stuff like that. So my, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about almost every weekend we'd have the cops at the house. How old are you at this time? Pastor? Uh, I'm seven years old. Okay. I'm seven years old. And, and so I'm watching all this drama. I, I, I remember sitting on top of the stairs one time and, uh, with my brother and my sister and we could just hear them downstairs and they're fighting and throwing stuff and, you know, uh, you know, we'd start crying, you know, we'd start crying. My sister was the oldest one, so she'd cuddle us up. But, uh, you know, I would just, I remember getting these knots in my stomach, you know what I mean? And uh, I learned how not to cry because uh, to my parents, I was weakness, you know. And it's kind of weird because even now, uh, my kids try to scare me sometimes. And, and I just kind of like look at them and they go, don't you get scared? It was not that I don't get scared. I feel it in my stomach. But it was something that I learned to do when I was a little boy, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, it was, like I said, it was weakness. And um, one time I remember my dad and my mom getting into an argument. I was in my room. My sister was in her room, and uh, I was right next to the stairways. And my dad and my mom are arguing. They're upstairs also, and there's like a little foyer right there. Right up. And as they're arguing, I remember seeing my dad throw my mom down the stairs. And I remember my mom flying down the stairs. I mean, you know, everything turns into like a slow motion kind mm -hmm. of thing. And, and as she's going down the stairs, her arm went into the rail. And as her arm went into the rail, I started to see her arm break into little pieces, you know. And as uh, and she hits the bottom, so there's two sets of stairs and a little foyer on the bottom. She hits the bottom, and I remember looking at her. And it, what it reminded me of, reminded me of was like a rag, uh, one of those Raggedy Ann dolls. Yeah. She was all broken up and... And, uh, you know, I'm thinking he killed her, you know. And so, you know, we, my sister comes out. We're all screaming. And, and my dad's trying to convince us. You've seen her. She slipped, right? You know. Wow. And, you know, that, that, that was the kind of stuff. So, and we couldn't really say anything because if we did, uh, we'd get in trouble. Was he abusive you know? to you guys too? My dad? Yeah, he was abusive. Uh, my dad was more like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know. There was times that... Uh, when he was sobered, um, it was a 50-50. He's, you know, he's pretty 
he tells us he loved us. He he tried to do things with us, but uh, how can I say? Um, there was just a lot of a. Uh, um, like I said, he was like Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, because he had gone through so much. With he didn't have a father in his home. His dad, uh, his mom, and his dad had divorced at a very young age and stuff. So he was full of anger, bitterness. He blamed the world for you know for everything. You know, what I mean, a lot of a lot of what I did, I did because I learned it from him. You know, and and my mom was very bitter because. Um, her, you know, she had grown up in a big family too, and they were very abusive. You know what I mean? And um, so, so she, just a way of life. For yeah, them. It, yeah. It was just to them. It was normal. You know. Yeah. Now I get it. Now I look at it, and I say, well, no wonder they didn't know how to say I love you or how to show any kind of effects. They, no, it was never shown to them. But my mom was, you know, she was just as bad as my dad. You know, at, at, you know, I I remember another time when my mom, and uh, my dad were arguing, and we we're upstairs also. There's a bathroom there. My dad and my mom go into the bathroom, and I could hear them arguing. And my mom pulls out a gun to shoot my dad inside the bathroom. And my dad grabs the gun with his hand, so she shoots him in the hand. Wow. You know? And so they were just as violent. It just didn't, it didn't matter. You know what I mean? It was just a, uh, you know, you were lucky if nothing happened. So <laughs> if there was, you know, drinking every day. My mom drank every day. My dad was a weekend drinker. My dad's, you, you could tell my dad was was uh, wanting to drink because he'd, he'd get in this grouchy mood. You know what I mean? And it was a trip, man, because I could look at my dad and, 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 I, and I tell him, you feel like drinking, huh? No, what you, you know what I mean? And you're just like your mother, and, and that's what it was. And see, and that's one of the other things. My dad, you know, he would always tell me, you're just like your mother, you're just like this. So, so he had that, 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 that against me. And then my mom would say, you're just like your father. You know, so I'm caught in the middle. You know what I mean? I'm caught in the middle. So, and they love my, 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 my dad and my mom love my sister. They're, they're real hard on her. She, she went through a lot of stuff too. I remember things she went through, but, uh, it's her first daughter, you know, they, they love her, you know, uh, they're going to take care of her, you know, it's, it's their baby girl. And then my little brother, uh, he was a baby. So they're going to take care of him because he was the baby, but I'm in the middle. So it's not really like, well, we don't really have to like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? You know, what he thinks about us, you know? Hey, Pastor, um, what was your, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but what was your process of thought as a child going through this? Was there any process of thought or was it just, that's just, it, it is what it is? Or was this, was this, uh, was there this, uh, this, this thought of like, why is this happening? Does it have to be this way? Will this ever end? Or was it just, this is just my life? Well, you know, to me, you know, it was what it was. But at the same time, you want something different. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, even though we lived in the projects and 99% of the kids that lived in the projects had the same kind of lifestyle. Every once in a while, you'd see a happy family. You know what I mean? And that's who you want it to be. You want it part of that happy family. Well, I think that's, that's a common thing with uh, with gangs, right? Is a lot of these people they grow up in the same household you're talking about, yeah. and so they find that family unit with the gangs, and that's, exactly, exactly, right? exactly. And that's and that's what everybody does, you know. We're a family. We 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 people join gangs because that's the only family they know, you know. Yeah. So I mean, knowing kind of where your testimony is is going, 
Um, I mean, you can tell from the story of your of your childhood how it desensitized you to violence, right? And how you know you grew up later in the gang life doing the things that you did, you know, based on your environment as a child, right? That just shows. With all our testimonies, it's interesting just to kind of analyze uh, everybody's childhood because that's really what shapes them on who they are mm, and the decisions they make as teenagers and stuff. So obviously this had a, a huge impact on who you became. Yes. Right? The the hopelessness you felt by everybody just kind of berating you with violence and words. And, you know, you preached a good sermon last night about the power of words, right? And so <clears throat> that obviously plays a huge part, right? Did, I mean, yes. you, I'm sure you attribute... Yeah. Your home life with your parents is basically why you became yeah. who you became, right? Of course, and that's and that's what ended up happening. You know, you you become hard. You know, uh, you know, growing up as a child, like I said last night, you know, I was called names. You know, if I if I cried, I was called weak. You know, I was called a sissy. Uh, you know, and and so that kind of every time they would say stuff like that, I would it would make me angry. It would make make me hate them even more. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, because it, it just, I really didn't know what love was, you know. Uh, I, I've never really had the understanding of what true love was. And so, you know, and then these are the people that are supposed to protect you. These are the people that are supposed to love you and, you know, and and, and they weren't loving you. You know, they you, you had more of a chance getting, you know, something happening to you at home than out in the streets, yeah. you know. And so, like I said, these are the people that I depended on but they weren't there for me. So the only thing that I could do is go into the streets, you know, and, and you know, and because of the people that they would bring into the home, like, you know, I was talking about uh, being molested, you know, and uh, part of, of that, I, I, when I was molested the very first time, I was molested by a woman. And I couldn't see, I, I, you know, I mean, you know, you're, you're a child, you're seven years old, what do you know? Uh, but it feels like love. You understand? Yeah. So then as time goes by, you know, uh, I get molested again. Uh, and, and this time it's from a guy. But at the same time, now at this point in my life, I'm starting to think, okay, uh, am I a queer? Am I a man? Uh, because all this stuff runs through your mind, you know what I mean? So in my mind, I said, no, I'm going to show them that I'm not a queer. I'm going to show them that I'm a man. So through the process of that, I became very hateful, very bitter. You know, I started to, to do things that I wouldn't normally do. So now by the eight, from, from the age of 17, I mean, from the age of seven to the age of 12, uh, my life just turned around completely around, you know. Uh, I started uh, playing around with, you know, with uh, wanting to be a gang member, you know, uh, wanting to be different, wanting to uh, fit in, you know what I mean? Uh, wanting to show my parents that I wasn't weak, that I was strong, you know? And so I started to do things uh, that I wouldn't normally do, you know, because before I was afraid, uh, you know, I wouldn't take something that didn't belong to me. Um, you know, I just, I wouldn't do, I, I didn't, you know, do drugs or drink or whatever. And, uh, by the time I was 12 years old, I'm already drinking. I'm already getting high, you know, and in my mind, cause I have to grow up, you know? So in those five years of my life, I had no choice but to grow up, 
Pastor, so, if I could interject something here yes. real quick, Pastor, and I don't, I'm trying not to interrupt you because I want you to say your story, but there's some things that I want to uh, interject in there. Like, so the, the issue with molestation and stuff from, uh, in, in your life, uh, it, it just, it proves the, the importance of why, you know, I'm sure you can attest to the, re the reason why it happens was because your parents were being careless. Yes. You're a child. You're supposed to be protected. Your parents are being careless because of drugs, alcohol, whatever it is that's going on. They're bringing these people into the house. I'm pretty sure these are the people that they know or that they party with, and it just it just it proves very clearly and very powerfully the importance of why it's you know Christ, salvation, all these things. Why we need to be sober minded. Yes. Why we have to live right. And the but the other thing about this, Pastor, is you know you're saying. You got molested twice, or you got molested by these people, and, you know, you're a child. But, and, but the thing about it is, once you've been molested like that, you're no longer a child. You are a child in, in age or maybe in physicality, but in the spiritual aspect of it, the mentality aspect, they strip the innocence from of you. Of course, they, they've taken all that away from you. You know, um, you know, I think I was sharing with you the other day, uh, uh, you know, when I had been molested, you know, your mind starts thinking different, you know. And I remember my, my, my sister had this this doll, this big old doll, and, and my mom comes in the room and I'm touching the doll, you know what I mean? And uh, my mom starts to blame me. You know, you're dirty, you're nasty, you're no good. You know, I've just been molested, you know what I mean? This, this, this is something new to me. This is something that 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 was imparted into me, and and and, and you know, it, this was a babysitter that was supposed to be taking care of us, and you brought her into the house, and this is what she did, and you know what I'm saying, and so, but now the tables have been turned. Yep. Now I'm the bad person. The person that did that to me isn't the bad person. I'm the bad person. And that always seems to be the common response and and like in my dealings as a pastor with people that have been through molestation it always seems like it's the parents always blame the victim yes, yes. and it happens all the time and and so then as they blame you then you start very self-esteem you know what i'm saying i'm not worthy i'm not good for nothing i'm this i'm that you know and i, I you know i didn't grow up in a in, in any kind of a of a religious home you know what i'm saying the only time my mom i Remember my mom doing Lent, you know, she'd stop drinking for 40 days, you know what I'm saying? And But on the 40th day, watch out because the cops were coming, you know what yeah. I mean? But, it, you yeah. know, that was, that, that was the only thing I knew, you know, I knew that we passed by the Catholic Church and do the sign of the cross, and that mm -hmm. was about it, you know? Yeah. So I had no relationship with God, I didn't know God, I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about God, and so all I'm doing is what's being taught, and at that point, what's being taught isn't good, yeah. you know? So my, my mind, I have a perverted mind. Now, you got, there's another thing that you need to understand. In, in, in those days, um, you know, there was a lot of Mexican movies. I don't know if you can relate to that. There were a lot of Mexican movies. There, were, there was a movie called La Pulqueria, and La Pulqueria 1 and 2. It was almost like, for, like the Halloween, you know what I mean? There was so many of them. But they would show nudity. They would show, you know, perversion. And, and it was normal. You know, it was normal. Yep. So, you, you, you know, in, in the Mexican homes, these things were normal. Yep. So what that was doing to me, it was uh, 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 just increasing the way I thought. You yep. know what I'm saying? Just yep. making it worse. It wasn't because now uh, I'm not looking at women the way I should. But and, and, and now my miss, I have a misunderstanding of what love and lust is. 
Correct. That's that's the catch right there. So, you know, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> that's why we live in a world now that people misunderstand love and lust, mm-hmm. you know. And so from that moment on, I wasn't thinking like a child, you know. Uh, you know, I wasn't the kind of guy, it's not that I didn't know how to ride a bike, but I, I'd rather drive a car than ride a bike, you know what I mean? Uh, I'd rather be with a woman than be with my friends playing around. You know, it was, you know, that's an age that you should be playing marbles and you should be riding your bikes and you should be doing all that kind of stuff. That, that wasn't my thing, mm-hmm. you know? I'd go to the movies and, 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 and it's a spirit. I'm going to tell you, it's a spirit. It's a demon spirit because I'm 12 years old, right? And I would go to these 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 movies. I would, I'm the youngest one of all my all my homeboys in the same gang, and we would go to the movies together, and we'd meet all these girls that were already 17, 18, you know. And and I'm 12 years old, and I'd hook up with these girls mm-hmm. because it's a spirit, yeah. you know. what I mean, it was this that I, I I no longer I was no longer a little boy. I didn't act like a little boy, you know. Like you said, I made I didn't have no 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 peach fuzz. I didn't you know what I mean? I didn't know what that was you know what i'm saying but i was hooking up with these girls you know and and i'd go home i remember going home you know i was already dressing up with the cholo you know i had my derby on and i had my flannels and and my dickies and i'd come home and i'd be high you know i had my little earring with my little cross on my earring you know and and i'd walk into the house i'd all full of hickeys and my mom wouldn't tell me anything you know you know they'd give me a hard time you know mess around but there was there was really no no uh any kind of correction and say, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. You're just a little boy. <coughs> Excuse me. It, it, it just became normal. Yeah. It became normal. So, uh, you know, anything that I did, it, 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 you know, I, had, I was at the point where my mom wouldn't really tell me anything. My dad wouldn't tell me anything. So my dad and my, my, my dad had gone to prison uh, because he had was out there looking for my mom while she was cheating. So my dad, my dad had gone to prison that time that he had gone to prison. I just went crazy, mm-hmm. you know. So there was the uh, <laughs> there was the molestations, all this stuff that happens to you. Then in the midst of that, or because of that, then drugs get introduced, and then the gangs come from that. Or how did it manifest from a child molestation, and then drugs, and then outward into the streets, and then into uh, you know, getting getting into a gang. Well, you know, the the, the thing was that you know at, by this time it, I started drinking when I was eleven years old. Okay. You know, my my mom had no issue with that; she had no problem with that. You know, my mom had, came from a very small town in Mexico, and so to them it was normal if a kid drank or if he smoked or whatever. So I would sit, I'd sit outside with my mom and drink a beer, you know, smoke a cigarette, you know. And so from there, you know, hey, man, you know, you know, hang out with my friends. And it's like, hey, man, hit this, you know. <coughs> and so we would like we would start to see the other kids in the uh, in the projects that had parents that were old pachucos. You know what I mean? So they were already gang members, you know. So they, they, they had grown into a fa- uh, they were born in, into a family of gang members. So we started our own little clique. You know, we started our own little gang. There was a bunch of us, so we started our own little gang for we can, you know, protect each other, you know. And before you know it, it's like boom, boom, boom. You know what I mean? We start we start doing everything everybody else is doing. We're stealing. We're doing drugs. We're selling drugs. Uh, you know, we're, we're um, you know, I, I remember we put our change together. We'd go across the street and we'd cook a little carne asada. We're a bunch of kids cooking a little carne asada. We'd 
get somebody to buy us a bottle of Thunderbird and we'd all take a swig, you know, and eat this food because we had nothing at home. Um, it didn't matter if we came home or if we didn't come home. Uh, so it just started getting, you know, we, we started to see, you know, uh, um, that, that to us it was a benefit because we were like meeting girls. So in the process of meeting girls, you felt loved, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And part of a, a beating people up from other neighborhoods, you know, your homeboys would, hey, man, all right, bro. You know, the adrenaline, oh, man, you did good, you know. So it was uh, the it was it was you're looking for love, you're looking for affirmation, things that you should be getting from your parents or from the home. It's not there, it's, so it's it's projected outwardly, and you know it's misconstrued. But it's it's the love, the lack of love that everybody's always looking for, the lack of affection, the lack of affirmation that they're searching for in their lives, and and you find it, you find that in the streets. Yeah, you you find it, but it, but it's uh it's I'm sorry, it's warped. Yes, you know what I'm saying. It's not normal. Correct. It's it's totally warped because even your own homeboys are backstabbing you and you know if they're hanging around with somebody that they look up to you know what i mean and you're there well let's pick on him you know what i mean uh, let's pick on him let's beat him up let's let's do this to him for they could for they can feel more loved because they feel rejected too correct you know because everybody there's rejected yeah everybody wants to be loved just that nobody has an understanding of what love is yeah. you know because nobody's been taught love not even in their own homes they haven't been taught love their parents weren't taught love so how can they be taught love you know what yeah. i mean so we're, we're out there looking for love in all the wrong places but yet you know what i mean we can't find it there's that void inside of us and we're doing whatever it takes so if i have to hurt someone for someone to like me that i that that like feels like love then i'm going to do what i have to do if i have to steal something that doesn't belong to me just so i could feel loved then i'm gonna do that you know what i'm saying and so that's that's why i really believe that that's why so many of these guys get into, into so much trouble and young ladies get into so much trouble because they're looking for love you know you got young ladies that are having you know kids from two three different guys why because they're looking for love because yeah. there's a void there yeah. and most of these people you talk to them especially people that came out of the same kind of lifestyle they've gotten molested They've gotten molested, you know, and, and so, you know, like I said, you're looking for love. You can't, you, you know, you don't, you don't even have an understanding of what love is. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, go ahead, Daniel. No, so, <clears throat> I mean, it's a skewed perspective. You know, one of the, uh, the common themes amongst our guests is molestation, abuse as a young child. And I mean, it's crazy how much it's out there. So I can see that, but I just had a quick question on, um, so during this era, what era, were you gangbanging? Was it in the eighties, nineties? It was in the in the late seventies already. Late seventies, late seventies. Oh, wow, okay, so you were 80s. like early days of, yeah. of yeah. the street gangs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was. I was born in sixty six. So by okay. the time by the time by nineteen seventy seven, I was already running around the streets. Oh, hey, wow. Pastor, and when you were talking about the, uh, you said you started this little gang. Um, was that a Sureño gang, or was that just a little gang, and then it manifested into a well, Sureño gang? You know, the, you know, the Sureño. Like I said, the Sureño comes. You know, Southern United Raza, where a bunch of People that come from Southern California. So, you know, it, it, our mentality wasn't even there because we didn't even, you know, okay. it, it wasn't a thing to us yet. We okay. were too young to even understand what that was, you know. Okay. What I mean? uh, so we never really. Uh, but even that gang aspect of it was still yeah, yeah, young was, too? Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, because we had just started this. So, you know, a, a lot of things, uh, you know, people don't really understand that, you know, we, you know, you had your pachucos before you had your cholos. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? The gangs didn't really start kicking. You know, you had your, when the Pachucos came out, you started having little gangs here and there. 
but they didn't really start to come out until almost the, the early 70s. Okay. You know what I mean? Maybe late 60s, but in the early 70s, everything started to blow up. And so even though, you know, now we're in 2023, if you, you know, there, there's so much stuff that has changed, even through the gangs, you know, uh, everything that happened was uh, all that, 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 that gangs. And, and I mean, I mean you know, there, there's a lot of it still going on. But what I'm saying is the big boom was like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know what I mean? And then the late 90s, it kind of started dying out, you know. Uh, you know, in those times, you know, they, you get, you wanted to join a gang. You were getting jumped into a gang. I'm sure they're still probably doing the same thing now, initiations. They have it now, whatever. But, you know, back then, we were getting jumped into gangs. So you'd have to get jumped in by some guys. They'd kick you around for a little bit, you know, smack you around. And, and then they'd pick you up, shake you off, and give you a beer. Uh, then, you know, as time goes by, you know, now, I, you know, I started hearing different stuff, but it's just kind of like everything changes, you know, even, even the way of thinking changes. There's, uh, you know, because we, even though we were, we were gang members and we had grown out in the streets, we still had certain values. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we, we respected our elders. We respected, uh, you know, uh, even my, my mom, my, my mom, I could stand in front of my mom. My mom would stand there and slap me and slap me and slap me. And I, I wouldn't raise my hands at her. And it wasn't because I couldn't stop her. No. It was just a sense of respect. You always respect your mother. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and the same thing with my dad. But with my dad, it was a little bit more different because with my dad, it was that, uh, you know, I loved him. And, and I really, uh, you know, I, I would walk up to him. I'd hug him and I'd kiss him and because I, I loved my dad. I really, I, when I was real little, I was real, real close to my dad. And, uh, but it had gotten to the point where he had become so abusive that I have fought him a couple of times. And at one point I had to tell him that if he touched me, I'd kill him, you know, because it was just, it was totally different, you know? And, and, and so with all the, the, the gangs and everything, we, we, we were just trying to fit in. I, I really believe that, you know, everybody that was there, you know, it blows my mind when I hear people, Oh, he's just a wannabe. You need to be careful with that wannabe because that wannabe eventually becomes somebody later on. Yeah. Because everybody's a wannabe at the beginning. Yeah. And we want to be loved. That's really where it's at. And because we want to be loved, we're willing to do whatever it takes to be loved. So, yeah, because uh, I, that's very true because uh, that wannabe in his search and in his great desire for that love that's lacking, that's missing, there's no telling what that wannabe will do to be what he what he's looking for. Oh, yeah, and it's true. And, you know, I never looked at myself as anybody important. You got to understand, I, I was just a kid. I, I didn't have brothers to back me up. I didn't have nobody to back me up, cousins, and say, well, well, so, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my uncles were ex-gang members or my, you know, I, I, I had nobody. I was like the first gang member in my family. So, you know, I never thought of myself as somebody that people would respect, people people would fear, you know, and because I was the youngest one, okay, I was the youngest one of them all, uh, you know, I never thought that I had made an impact. I remember years ago, I had gone to Virginia to go preach for uh, Carlos Morales. And while we were at a fellowship, I got a phone call from a, from a homeboy of mine. They called him Pops. And I don't even know how he got a hold of me. But when we're at that fellowship, he calls me and uh, I start talking to him. And he's like, and the first thing that comes out of his mouth, he's like, wow, man. You sound like a man, you know, I'm used to talking to the young kid, you know, but you sound like a man. And he goes, uh, I called you to ask you for permission to use your life in a movie that we're thinking about making. And so he sent me some pictures of some movie stars. I, 
I've seen them, but I don't really know who they are. And he goes, uh, you know, and then, you know, so I said, yeah, do whatever you want, you know. And, uh, and then he starts telling me, do you understand that when you left, everything went crazy? See, I had never seen myself as anybody. Because all my life, I have been seen as a nobody. And so, <coughs> he says to me, when you left, man, he says, I got shot like 16 times. and <coughs> Another guy got shot. And he starts telling me all this stuff. He goes, you know, he goes, it all happened after you left. It was all because of the incident that happened at your house. <coughs> and, you know, we. I thank God that, uh, you know, when he said that to me, I was already saved. You know, I was already pastoring. Because I really think that if he would have said that to me when I was living in the world, I just would have got it and, and, and ran with it. Mm -hmm. You know, and. uh so what we can, do you mind talking about that incident? Yeah, that happened. Well, real quick, Daniel, if you don't mind me asking, uh, <laughs> uh, Pastor, so you had mentioned, I want to I want you to talk about that incident, but I was trying to find a space to come in here. Uh, you had mentioned that when you were a little kid and you were in the gang, you were so crazy out there that they greenlit you. Yep. Uh, can you talk about that before you talk about the incident? Okay, well, it happened in two different situations. See, when, when I was uh, 12 years old, we had uh, the guys that, we, a bunch of us had gotten together. And um, we had, uh, you know, started a little clique. I can't even remember the name of it. So, you know, when we started this little clique, we, uh, we were looking. It's like you're looking where you're going to fit in. You know what I mean? You're just starting something, but you want to fit in somewhere. And so in the process of wanting to fit in, one of the families that lived there, we were actually, a, a, it was a, two families, but they were related. They had moved to South LA. <clears throat> now, I, I, was, I grew up, after Compton, we, I grew up in Harbor City, which is by uh, Long Beach and San Pedro area. So when they moved, they moved to the LA area. Down, you know, so now it's all, of, it's all LA County, even where I'm at, but this, this is now LA, like downtown LA kind of. And these guys got introduced to a different gang, and it was called South Los. It's South, South L.A. It was on 155th. And so it was like 100. I lived on 255th, so it was about 100 blocks away, and blocks out there are humongous. <laughs> when they got jumped into this gang, we got introduced to that gang. So we started to claim the gang. We started to tag up the gang, you know what I mean, in a neighborhood that was against, you know what I mean, the rival gang. They just didn't get along. Sorry. By the, by the time I was, you know, almost 13, they had to come to the house to kill me. The guys from Harbor City, from my neighborhood that I lived in, because of that. There was a guy named Casper that every time he'd see me, he would tell me that he was going to kill me, you know? And so 
at that moment in my life, you know, I had to share with you that my dad was in prison. My dad had gotten out of prison. And when my dad got out of prison, he came home, he had some money, he bought me some shoes, bought some stuff for me and my brother, my sister, my dad took off. Him and my mom were no longer uh, together. And he took off to Douglas, Arizona. And, you know, I was being threatened so many times. I was being jumped. I had been beaten up by these gang members in Harbor City. So many things had happened that at that point in my life, uh, one day we got this guy drunk. Now, I'm already living with a woman, okay? So she's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 13. She's already 17. You know, she's, you know, she's almost an adult. She's also a gang member from Barrio Avenue, which is a different gang. So my brother-in-law is from Tortilla Flats. My sister claims Tortilla Flats. Uh, my brother is one of the little uh, right around Harbor City Peewees, you know. So we end up getting this guy drunk. It was a friend of my, my, my dad's. And we end up leaving to Douglas because they're trying to kill me. And so we're out there for a couple of years um, living with this woman. It was, it was just amazing because people would see her and they go, is that your little brother? And she'd go, no, that's my, that's my man. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they would look at her like, what the heck? You know? Mm -hmm. But like I said, my mind was no longer the, the mind of a child. Yep. You know? In yep. my mind, I was a man. Yep. You know? And, I mean, you got to understand, I, I bought a car at the age of 13. Yep. You know? And so I'm working out. They, I can't even get a job because I'm so little. I'm so young. I'm a tiny little guy, you know. And uh, it was funny because at that time they used to call me little one because I was like short, like a real, I was like 4'8". Oh, wow. I was real little. I was yeah. just a kid. And I hadn't even gone through puberty yet, you know what I mean? Wow. And I'm working out in the fields. I remember me and my brother-in-law would wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, wake by a light pole for for a, the bus that would cross, uh, pass by the border and pick up all the illegals while they were jumping the fence. <laughs> and then they would come and pick us up and then take us to Rodeo, New Mexico. And we'd be out there working in the fields. Oh, wow. You know? And we'd be picking chilies and watermelon. Man, I remember crying. I mean, crying, brother. We got, I'd get there, it was dark. I'd leave there, it was dark. Wow. You know what I mean? We were just like working, working. Now, and, and it was just enough to, for us to live on, to rent a place together and whatever. And, and, you know, so I'm out there for a couple of years, and in the process of being out there, my mom, uh, my mom's dad died. And so I call my mom to tell her that her dad died. Now, listen to this. I haven't spoken to my mom for two years. So now I'm, I went from 4'8 to where I'm at right now, which is 5'8. You know what I mean? Grew an old foot there, right? Not much, but for me it was a lot, you know? My voice has changed. I call her, and she goes, who is this? And I said, this is your son. She goes, you're not my son. She's used to hearing this little boy's voice. <clears throat> and I said, no, this is your son. I'm me. It's me, Frankie. And so then I start to tell that her dad passed away. By this time, me and this, the young lady that I was with, we had split up and stuff. And uh, she had became a dispatcher for the police department. And so we had split up, and uh, my mom comes back, comes to Arizona, because <coughs> across the border of Douglas, that's her family's from Sonora. She goes to go go to her dad's funeral. 
When she comes back, she comes and tells me that everything's going to be okay, that things are going to be different, that, you know, she's not, you know, she's not going to put other guys before me, which is a lie. But, you know, I figure, oh, well, let's go. So I end up going back to California. <clears throat> My mom ends up uh, hooking up with this guy. And when she hooks up with him, uh, this guy starts to show me, because I was so rowdy and so crazy, the guy likes it because he's the same kind of person. He grew up in a home where his brother was murdered. Uh, he tried to kill the guys that, that killed his uh, bro His brother was like his dad, and they slid his throat from end to end. He had a cut from one end to the other. So he had already murdered about four different guys that had killed his brother. So this guy, he showed me love, you know, and he liked my craziness, you know. I mean, he even tried to get crazy with me a couple of times, and I went at it with him, and he would trip out on me like, this kid is crazy, you know. And But he liked that in me. So he would hug me. I mean, he would, you know what I mean? I, I, that was love to me. That was love, mm -hmm. you know. He would show me how to use a weapon. He showed me how to throw knives. I mean, this guy, he's just, he was, he was a violent guy, and that's what he showed me how to, you know, he showed me how to do stuff. And so I was like, man, this guy really likes me, you know? And he would introduce me as his son, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm grabbing a hold of all this, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, man, you know, I've never felt this before. Yeah. And so as time goes by now, you got to understand, now I come back to Harbor City, and when I came back to Harbor City, all my friends that were Sudeño, that were, I mean, were from uh, South Los, are now, have now become gang members from Harbor City. And they start to explain to me, bro, you don't have to be from South Los. You don't have to claim South Los. You grew up here. This is your hood. This is what you claim. And so it took a little bit of convincing, you know what I mean? It took a while to convince me and... Uh, I would start hanging around with them, but every time I would hang around with them, some of the guys would start saying stupid stuff like, hey, man, I think this dude's from another neighborhood, bro. You know what I mean? Just to start problems. And so the older guys would tell me, hey, Frank, you want to get jumped in? Now, I had never been jumped into the other gang. I just claimed, we we're just claiming it. <laughs> and so eventually they convinced me. And I get jumped into the gang and so when I get jumped into this gang, this friend of ours, a friend of the families, we, you know, we knew his mother. His mother was the only thing we knew as a grandmother at the time because she lived next door to us for years. And her son was one of the main guys from in the neighborhood, in Harbor City. At that time, you know, um, you know I'm 15, you know, so he, he had taken care of me when I was younger. Even when I was younger, somebody tried to get close to me, you know, uh, jump in and tell them to leave me alone. They respected him because he was well known. This guy's a humongous guy. Looked like, like uh, the the guy that used to play the Incredible Hulk. I mean, this guy was locked up so many times. He was like big old buff guy, you know. And so, you know, I I I when I get jumped into this neighborhood, he takes me under his wing. And so. We'd go places and all these gang members would be hanging out, you know, from the same gang. And, and he'd put them to the test. Hey, man, who's willing to do this and this and this? 
know, and the, these guys, you know, the youngsters are like, me, me, man, I'll do it, I'll do it. And they go, ain't none of you guys got the guts. He says, termite will do it for me because that's what they used to call me, you know. And, and so these guys started getting bitter towards me, started getting hateful towards me because it's like this guy that everybody looks up to, the only person that he counts uh, is me, you know. And, and so they're like, why? You know, we grew up here. We're from here. We all our lives, we've been from here. But now you're, 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 you're counting on this guy. And so every time I'd go home, my stepfather would be standing by the door drinking. You know, he, he'd wear a cowboy hat. Cow, he had cowboy boots. He'd wear Levi's. With, and he'd always wear like a, a, a muscle shirt, you know. Uh, and he was a pretty stocky dude too, you know. And, uh. And my homeboy would always tell me, hey, bro, does he mess with you? I told him, nah, he doesn't mess with me. Because if he ever messes with you, bro, you let me know. He just didn't like him. Mm-hmm. And so this went on and on and on and on. And, and so one day I came home. And when I came home, my stepdad was standing at the front door. And uh, he goes, he calls me and he says, hey, Frank. He goes, have you seen George? Which was that friend of mine. And I said, no, I haven't seen him. And then he explains to me that they had gotten into a fight. I guess he was at the gas station pumping gas. And, you know, back in the day, the license plate, behind the license plate, he's on his, like, squatted down putting gas. And he heard somebody say, hey, he looked up. He punched him in the face and knocked him out. You know what I mean? Took his hat. And and he goes, so he's telling me what had happened. And he goes, well, he goes, I bought a new hat. I wanted to see if he likes this one. He goes, and uh, so he goes, if you see him, let him know, you know. And I said, uh, you know, what's going on? You know, no, no, no. I said, why don't you guys just fight toe-to-toe, you know. And he goes, no. He goes, I got this hat for him. So I want to know if he likes it. He goes, and then I got something else that I want him to hold for me. And he pulls out a gun. (laughs) So I just figured, ah, whatever, you know, nothing's going to happen. And so I go upstairs to my room, and I'm, I'm probably there for, for a couple of hours. And, and suddenly I hear arguing, and my sister calls me, and she says, Frank, you need to come down here. She goes, Angel, which is my stepdad, he says, and George are fighting, are arguing. She goes, you need to come down. So I come running down the stairs, and when I go running down the stairs, I'm coming right behind my stepfather, and my homeboy's right outside the door, and so there's these steps going down, and he's standing at the front door. As I get to the back of my stepfather, I, my stepfather had already pulled out the gun, but he had he was covering it with the door, so he hadn't seen it. And he was actually setting it on the table. He was getting ready to set it on the table. And, uh, and as he was setting it on the table, my homeboy had a sarape over him, and he threw the sarape up in the air, and when he threw it up, he pulled up a sarap. And it wasn't, a, you know, your typical sawed-off shotgun. It was a, a sawed-off 22. That's what it was. And when he pulled, the, what happened was he beat him to the punch. He pulled the trigger, but the bullet got jammed. Mm. So when he threw the sarape and picked it up, my stepfather just automatically grabbed the gun and started to unload. So I'm standing behind him as he's shooting at him. And so my homeboy has... Pants on, waraches, no shirt on. And I could actually see the bullets going in and out of his body. And, you know, everything at that moment goes into, like, a slow motion. Like, oh, you hear, you hear this noise. And 
and and he's turning around in circles, man. It's, it's something like a movie. He's turning around in circles, and with the rifle in his hand still, but the rifle's pointing down, and he's just he's unloading. He unloaded the whole clip on him, and I remember he hits the ground, and the first thing that comes into my mind is to give my stepdad the keys to the car. I said, "You gotta leave, bro." I said, because if you don't, they're going to kill you. <clears throat> he gets in the car and he takes off and I hold this this man in my arms. I'm calling my dad. I said, Dad, Angel just killed George. At that time, my dad's now living in Torrance, which is uh, another city down from where we're at. I called 911. And so the cops come. And I'm holding them in my arms. The first thing they do is they grab me, they slam me on the floor, they handcuff me, and they take me in. And they're questioning me because obviously they think I have something to do with this. And so through the process of all this, gang members start to come. Now, you got to understand, I lived right on PCH, which is a big highway, <clears throat> and Vermont. So it's like the two, big, two of the big main streets in L.A., this street is closed off all the way from PCH to Vermont. There's gang members everywhere. There's gang members that that aren't even from that neighbor that that don't even that are from that neighborhood but don't even live in that neighborhood that are there. So they end up taking me in, and as they're questioning me, you know, I'm like I said, I'm full of blood, and and I go in there and I'm washing up, and they they're questioning me, they're asking me all these questions, and and uh. I'm talking about, you know, I had nothing to do with this. And so they end up taking me back. But as they're taking me back, the detective tells me, he says, be careful, man, because they're going to try and kill you, bro. That's that's the word. Because the cops made it seem like I had something to do with it, you know. And so as they take me back, I get off the police car. <clears throat> and the cop just walks away from me. He leaves me there. <clears throat> And so these homeboys of mine come up to me, about 25 of them come up to me. And, um, and one of the older guys comes and whispers in my ear and he says, be careful because they're going to try and kill you, you know? And so they go, hey, hey, come on, turn right, let's go, let's go get him. And uh, well, you know where he's at? I said, well, he's up in Tortilla Flats. You guys want to go to Tortilla Flats and go get him? That's on you guys, you know? And so, but they go, no, no, we want you to come. See, but I, I already knew what they were going to do. I already, yeah. I already knew the plan. So we yep. get them in the car, we'll go to where they're at, and we'll just shoot him and dump him out of the car. I knew because I'd seen it happen so many times, yep. you know what I mean? That, 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 that's, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I said, yep. no, nah, I'm not going with you. You go. Mm -hmm. And then one of the guys there said, he goes, you know what, why do we have to go anywhere, bro? Let's just do it here. Now, there's cops everywhere there, bro. There's cops, there's detectives, there's all kinds of stuff going on. These guys aren't scared of the police. They're not scared of nothing. And so the guy pulls the gun out. And so as he pulls the gun out, I'm running through the crowd. Now, <clears throat> my uncles are there. My dad's, my, no, my dad's not even there yet. My uncles are there and their wives are there. And as I'm running through the crowd, I'm telling my uncles, uh, watch my back, bro. Just watch my back. All you got to do is get in the way. Just watch my back. And one of my uncles said to me, he says, that's what you wanted. That's what you get. Wow. 
And so one of my uncles, his girlfriend grabbed me and leaned at me against the car and acted like she was kissing me. And my dad pulls up. And as my dad pulls up, I jump into the car and my dad takes off and they start shooting at the car. My mother shows up because she's out drinking about two o'clock in the morning. And she had seen uh, the body laying there. Now, at this point, he's dead. They covered up the body. And two weeks prior to that, my, my mom didn't want me to go outside because my mom was into witchcraft. And the witch would, told her not to let nobody, not to let me out of the house because they were going to kill me. That's what she told her. And so when my mom gets to the house, she sees the body laying in the front door. And she starts to call out my name. She starts to call out my name. She doesn't understand that she's making everybody think that I had something to do with the murder. <clears throat> See? So, you know, we're gone, but they put a hit on me. The next day, I'm at my uncle's house in Compton, and my stepfather shows up. And he's like, hey, Frankie, and he goes in sh to shake my hand. And I just look at him, and I'm like, I'm not shaking your hand, bro. You know, you just killed my friend, the only guy that, 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 I, that took care of me. And so my mom ends up dressing him up. They actually dressed him up like a cholo. They put him on a Greyhound bus, and they sent him all the way to Arizona, over here to Arizona, ends up in Mexico. Nobody even knows where he's at. <coughs> Three days go by, and I end up here. August 4th of, well, in, in Arizona, August 4th of 1983. I can't go back home because they put a hit on me. The house is surrounded by gang members. It's, uh, the cops have to come and stay there while my mom's emptying out the house. Now, I didn't know anything else but that. That's all I knew, you know what I mean? And so my mom brings brings me to Arizona, and, but I don't want to be there. And so um, I'm going back at night, man. I would drive down there, go hang out with some of my homeboys, get drunk, party, whatever. But I'd have to leave before sunup, you know what I mean? Nobody would find out that I was there. Well, eventually... My stepfather ends up coming to, to Tucson from Mexico. And we go, we're working out in the fields in the pecans in Arizona. They got a lot of pecans and we're picking pecans. That's where we're working. That was our first job out there. We get paid one day. And so I, I used to smoke a lot of sherm. And, and in Arizona, they didn't have sherm back then. So I started sniffing paint. I would sniff paint. A lot of paint. I go through about six cans, six cans of paint a day because I, I, I needed to make up for the PCP, you know. And so we're outside the house, and I remember I'm huffing this paint, and I'm drinking, and my stepdad's next to me, and he's, he's uh, drinking. And I remember looking up, and I remember seeing this little light. I was like, man, that's a weird light, you know what I mean? And so... I kept on staring at it. You know, I was on a good buzz. And it was a helicopter. It was way, way up high. 
and the gla- I could see the glare of the light. But when they noticed that I noticed, they turned on the light. And from all around, there was cops coming our way. And there was, there, it was a setup because it was detectives from California already here. So they get us. They handcuff us. I, I, I had ran to the door. I remember I ran to the door to go get into the house. And my dad shuts the door on me. And he says the same thing my uncle said. He goes, that's what you wanted. That's what you get. You know? And in my heart, up to this day, I really believe that my dad's the one that called the cops. Mm-hmm. And so they handcuff us and whatever. They end up taking us in. And they end up impounding the car. Took my stepdad. They end up letting me go. <laughs> but about probably... In, about, in the process of about, because I got then at in, in that time I ended up getting married to my first wife. I was seventeen years old; she was sixteen. My, um, I would I would go visit my dad, and uh, and the cops would would you know show up looking for me, and I'd go out the back door and take off. And eventually, they ended up catching up to me. And. They said, we're going to send you to California. There's, you know, there's a trial going on, and, and you need to go. He goes, but the word is that you're de- they're going to kill you when you get there. He goes, so we're going we're gonna to have you under protective custody. So we go down there, and I have cops sleeping in the rooms next to me. You know what I mean? Because they're, supposedly they're going to come and kill me at the hotel. They're going to come in. They're going to kill me at the courthouse. They're going to, you know what I mean? And... They're trying to say that I'm that I handed my stepfather the gun that I had. You know what I'm saying? I said I had nothing to do with this. You know, I was just the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what it was. And so, eventually, my stepfather gets sentenced. I can't remember, like twenty years or something. And uh, they end up, you know, letting me go. They they can't anything on me I have nothing to do with this but there's still a hit on me they're still trying to kill me they're still you know trying to find out where I'm at every once in a while somebody from Harvard City would show up to Tucson and I'd be like why are you here you know so I'm, I'm always with the doubt you know what I mean even they even though they were friends of mine that were close to me I didn't trust anybody you know what I mean because maybe their lives were in danger and they were like yeah. well, we'll take this guy out you know what yeah, I mean yeah. you know and so I just, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't trust him. And, you know, then, you know, as time goes by, I, 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 I'm, I'm living in Tucson. And, and before you know it, I'm running stuff in Tucson. You know, I become a drug dealer. Um, I'm doing whatever I have to do to survive. And uh, I'm working, but I'm, I'm also selling drugs. I, I uh, tried to, to be that you know that person that everybody wants to be you know i wanted to have a lot of money in my pocket but at the same time i wanted to be that robin hood that could save everybody you know i was buying people cars i was paying their bills i was buying their kids diapers i was filling up the refrigerators with food and you know so people you know they had that respect for me people would come up to me and say hey man i want to i want to do this you know and i would actually sit down have a gathering and tell them look uh, you know Bring your wife in here. Let's talk. You know, they'd bring their kids, their family, and 
they would be ha out having a part uh, at the party while I'd sit down and talk to them and tell them, do you know what your ha your husband asked me? I said, yes, you know, we need the money. So, well, you know, if you get involved in this, there's no going back. You know, if, uh, if, if you snitch me off, I'll kill you. You know what I mean? But not only I'll kill you and your family, I, I'm not going to have anybody come and look for me, you know, 19 years, you know, <laughs> you know, down the road, you know. So that and so people feared me because I wasn't the type of person that uh, because of everything that I had gone through, I had became so hard that I had become the kind of person that if somebody said they were looking for me, I'd go kick their door down and drag them out of their house because I wasn't going to wait for somebody. I wasn't going to live in fear. Correct. I wasn't going to live watching my back, which I did anyways, you know, but I wasn't, I didn't want to do that. And so everybody knew the consequences of that. So, you know, I did what I did. I, I did what I had to do to survive. And, you know, I end up in, 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 uh, 1990, um, I was at work and when I was at work, um, a sheriff showed up, and he wanted to talk to me. So, you know, I went up to him to go see what he wanted, and uh, and he asked me, he says, is Aida Romero your mom? I said, yeah. He says, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but your mother's been murdered. Mm. You know, and um, it was kind of hard. You, you're kind of in denial. I was like, my mom, you know, what would she be involved in? You know what I mean? I mean, you know, there's no reason that anybody would want to kill her. And uh, so uh, end up going uh, to the police department. Some detectives came. They explained to me. had her body shipped I I, uh, I had traded a car that I had for some for some drugs I had a car and, and that I was fixing up for you know a little low rider all custom and I I traded it for a, a kilo of cocaine for I could sell it and and uh, make money to bury my mom and had her body shipped to Tucson and uh, when we had her body shipped to Tucson we had to go identify the body know I remember walking in there and they had her laying on this metal table that shot half of her face off and, uh, I remember looking at her from a distance my dad had gone with me he started to yell at me and tell me to go, go see your mother started to push me and as he started to push me that way I remember I said to him for the very first time well, actually the second that was the second time I said if you ever push me like that again I'll kill you 
identified her body and you know we went through the funeral and everything and uh, we uh I got ready to go to California because uh we needed to go pick up her stuff and so my brother didn't want to go he's he's the youngest one and he wasn't I mean he wasn't little but he was young still in high school I believe <laughs> And uh, my sister said, she goes, I'll go with you. And, and um, So at the end of it all, um, nobody went with me. They said, uh, I, did, I had heard, overheard them talking and said, just, just let Frankie go. Yeah, he don't have a heart. He has no feelings. And it wasn't... It wasn't that I didn't have any feelings. I had just become hard. I had become that person that uh, that they wanted me to be, you know. <coughs> and so I uh, end up uh, going to her house and picking up her stuff and. You know, they had cleaned up all the major stuff, but they didn't clean everything up. And uh, I remember cleaning pieces of her face off her mattress. And I remember I wanted to cry, but I had this knot in my throat. I just couldn't cry. You know, I came back to Tucson and I went on a on an alcohol drug binge for about three months. I looked like I was homeless because uh, I just didn't care. I had lost hope, you know. My mother my mother had never told me that she loved me and I always wanted to hear her say that. And when she died, I, I knew that I had lost all hope. I knew that I never hear her tell me she loved me. So growing up like that all my life, I just that's all I wanted to hear her say that she loved me. And so I just became very bitter, more than what I already was, hateful. I became more violent to the point that I didn't care if if I died. <clears throat> I didn't care if I killed someone. It just it didn't matter to me anymore. Right after that, I had gotten into a argument with my brother-in-law, and I slit his throat eight times. And uh, I ended up in, in jail, and I remember being in jail and waking up and not knowing what happened. You know, because I was, my mind was just warped. I was just messed up. <laughs> I started, you know, like I said, became more violent. Started shooting at people. 
getting into shootouts. I remember getting into this shootout one time. My wife was with me. By this time, I'm married to my wife, Roxy, now. And uh, I told her to leave. And I had just shot at these guys at a gas station. And uh, I knew they were going to come to the house, you know. <laughs> and as she starts, she starts to drive out. I, my dad, my dad's my watchman, you know. He says to me, uh, they're coming. I remember throwing my wife down to the ground. And the first thing I remember is she had my son Anthony in her arms. And as she hit the ground, I remember he looked at me. He's just a baby. He looked at me like, what are you doing, daddy? That's what, that's what I got out. Luckily, it wasn't them, and I get her in the car, and she drives out. As soon as she drives out, the car pulls up. And I remember hiding behind a, a blazer, and the only thing that was on my mind, it wasn't about them shooting at me. It wasn't what was going to happen with the outcome, nothing. The only thing that mattered to me is that I didn't get hit in the face. See, because my mother had been shot in the face and I didn't want to get shot in the face. That's the only thing that mattered. That was the only thing that was on my mind at that point. And I remember when their guns sounded empty. Click, click. I came out with a gun in each hand. And I ran up to the car and I started to shoot inside the car. And I remember the, because they were young kids. They were young men. They were screaming. And they're going around in circles in the middle of the street. And I'm running with the car. My brother-in-law's with me. He's also shooting at the car. And they take off. No remorse. No fear. No nothing. The consequences didn't mean anything because at this time of my life I was already numb I didn't feel no pain you know the only satisfaction is the craziest thing about it is that I would go and I'd get you know I got tattoos on my stomach on my back and <laughs> that was the the only the only satisfaction I had that I could feel something you know I would get these tattoos because I could feel them cutting into my flesh and it gave me a satisfaction. Then I became my dad. I would drink and I would get glasses, bottles of liquor. I have a scar on my head here somewhere from a bottle of liquor I busted in my, and when I would bleed, it would show me that I was still alive. You know what I mean? I would look for that satisfaction because I felt numb. And nobody understood me. Nobody understood me. Nobody understood what I had gone through because, you know, uh, I had talked to people. I talked to, I even went to the Catholic church and talked to the priest one time. And I didn't even believe in all that, but I said, oh, I'm going to go talk to somebody. Because I would try to kill myself and couldn't even do that right, you know. 
I remember going into the Catholic Church and <laughs> sitting down with the priest and telling him, you know, I just tried to shoot myself three different times, man. Every time I was going to pull the trigger, my nephew walked in, my niece walked in, my sister walked in. I said, what do I do? He says, well, I can't tell you what to do because if I do, I, we can get sued. Mm. I felt like grabbing him and pulling him over the counter. Mm. It's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear that there was some kind of hope, yeah. you know, because I had lost all hope. You know, to, to me, there's like, at this point in my life, I was worried, like what you said right now, I, I was like, there's nothing else. This is who I am. I'm going to die like this. You know what I mean? There's no change. Nothing is going to get better. Nothing. This is what I deserve. <laughs> And my poor wife would just pray for me and pray for me. And, you know, she wasn't a drinker. She wasn't a partier. She didn't do drugs. She didn't do all these things. So we were from two different worlds. She would talk to me and she'd tell me, uh, um, babe, you can be a better person, you know. And I'd tell her, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. How can you tell me I could be a better person? She told me, your mom loved you. I know she didn't. Your dad loved you. No, he didn't. And so in the process of that time of my life, you know, I had been with so many women already because I, I, I wanted to be loved. But it wasn't satisfying anymore. There was no, there was no love. There was just I couldn't find love. So you know, in 1995, I made a choice. I made a decision to take my life. And uh, they had put me. Uh, I had gone to go ask for help, and the counselors gave me a notebook and told me to write down everything I went through. And you know how to spell, you know. Grabbed the notebook and threw it away and I went to go see a doctor and he put me on a, I think it's Prozac, something like that, depression pills. <laughs> I've always had high blood pressure, so they, they had me on this medication since I was like 20 years old. And uh, I didn't know that the, I found out after I committed suicide, I took 150 Prozacs. <laughs> they said that five of them should have killed me. But when I got to the hospital, my heart stopped. And they were trying to revive me. My wife says that I was outside of the house, crawling, foaming at the mouth. Her and the neighbors put me in the car and took, she took me to the hospital. And, uh, she said that they were, you know, kept on trying to revive me. She said they finally the doctor gave up. A nurse had walked in. She said and she said, uh, "You can't give up. He has too many babies. They these kids need their daddy." And uh, I guess they gave me a shot of adrenaline or something, and then they shocked me. And my wife says that I sat up, I like kind of squatted on top of the the bed 
I grabbed the doctor from his throat and I swung him over the bed. Said that another doctor came and I grabbed him with my other hand and swung him over the bed. I went into a slight coma. And when I woke up, I was tied down like almost every eight inches, man. I mean, I was tied down. Everything was far, far distant. But right before I woke up, I remember being in this dark, dark place. Not black, but dark. And I remember I could see myself. I was standing. I was in, I was in the hospital. I was standing there, and I was looking around, and, and everything was pitch dark. I would look up, and it looked pitch dark. I looked down, and it looked pitch dark. I looked to the sides, and it was pitch dark. But I was lit up. I was lit up. Where I was, I was lit up. There was this light around me for some reason. And when I woke up, my wife, my wife was laying right next to me. Her head was right on my shoulder. And I remember waking up and I was angry. And I started to, I started to yell at the nurse to come. My wife was yelling, he's awake, he's awake. <laughs> the nurse comes running in and doctors start coming in. And I remember telling the nurse, come here. And the nurse said, hell no. There's no way I'm getting close to you. She goes, you're the devil. Two weeks later, I come out of the hospital with a walker and an oxygen tank. They said that the drugs had affected my, my lungs somehow, and uh, they had affected my, 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 my muscles, whatever it did, spaz out my muscles. I don't know what happened. And uh, Every day my wife would take me out for walks. Every day. But even then, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because my understanding of love was totally, totally different than hers, you know? My understanding of love was uh, 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 more sexual than anything else, you know? So that, to me, that wasn't love. And, you know, time goes by and I lose the walker, I lose the oxygen tank, and I go right back to being the person I was. No change. I'm still violent. I'm still a drunk. I'm still, you know, all that is still going on in my life. My wife, uh, I'd be home and people would come to the house. Uh, some of her family that were involved in the Catholic Church would come and try to tell me about God, but, uh, excuse me. They were afraid of me. So even for them to talk to me, you know what I mean? They were afraid of me. They, were, they didn't know what to say. It's like they, they, were, they were like walking on eggshells. And uh, so she had Mormons come. Mormons are funny, you know. They, they would come and they would, you know, read me stuff. And I didn't care. I just, I'd, I'd feed them, you know. I'd feed them because, you know, they're like, 
elders, you know, and they didn't have money. They would tell me all this stuff, so I'd feed them. I remember because it's the first time I seen a, somebody eat a taco with a fork. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, I remember it got to the point where uh, I told Roxy, what do you want? What is it that you want? Well, I want you to change your mouth. I said, all right, well. I go, let's go see what their baptisms are about. I knew that they were getting baptized that day, so I went to go see what it was about, right? So I figured, ah, what the heck, I'll go. And if I got to get baptized in the Mormon church, I'll get baptized just so she could leave me alone, you know, because she just kept on pushing it. And so we went down there, and uh, I remember we got into an argument in the parking lot at the Mormon church. So we ended up leaving. And uh, we went back home and, and you know, just thought nothing of it, you know. You know, now she makes fun of me. She goes, can you imagine you would have been Elder Frank, you know. <laughs> you would have got a 10-speed and you would have been all right with your little tag. <coughs> you know. And uh, I was trying to do better. I was trying to stop doing drugs. So I worked at this company in the daytime doing tile and uh after work, the guys would go to work, and they'd invite me to go do side jobs, but I didn't want to go because we'd get high, we'd do coke, we'd drink, you know. So my sister and her husband, they worked at a Burger King, so I said, why don't you give me a job at Burger King? I just need stuff to keep me going. It wasn't the money. It was just to keep me going for I could stop doing what I was doing. So I'd been working there for about a couple of months, and uh, one day I, I called my wife. I said, just come get me. I said, I don't want to be here no more. And when she comes to pick me up, she uh, she shows me this flyer, right? And so I look at it, and the first thing that comes to my mind is victory outreach. You know, I don't, I don't knock anybody, but the way I had grown up in California, you know, I had seen gang members that were in victory outreach that weren't really saved, you know what I mean? It wasn't, like, really, you know, so I never even wasted my time hearing them. I didn't want to, you know what I mean? Because I, I would always, I'd see the same person. They were still cholos. They were still smoking. They were still, you know what I mean? So it's like there's, you know, what I want to do that for, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And then uh, I, uh, so I tell her, I said, nah, I don't want to go. I said, it's victory outreach. And she's like, well, you know, me and the kids really want to go and blah, blah, blah. And, and again, it's funny because it was, it was a gang play. And my wife's never been into gangs. It's like, it's you know, it's not part of her life, but she wanted to go. We're getting closer to the house. I said, you know what? If you want to go, let's go. I said, but I'm not going to go listen to this play. I'll stay over here by the car, and I'll smoke a couple of cigarettes and do whatever. So they go, and and, and, and they get, you know, they, they go up there to hear the, the drama. They, they I guess they prayed. I don't really know what happened. And... Um, this guy, I remember, uh, comes up to me. He's a pastor now in the fellowship. And he goes, hey, bro, let me tell you about Jesus. I said, bro, you come and tell me about Jesus, I'm going to knock your teeth out. He's like, all right, bro, no problem. He walked away. The old Mexican guy comes up to me, starts talking to me about work. And so we start talking about work. And before you know it, this other guy comes and he starts talking about work. He goes, what kind of work you do, bro? 
And right when I was going to leave, he says to me, can I pray for you? I remember I turned around angry and I said, you want me to pray? And he says, no, I want to pray for you. Just knock yourself out. I figured, oh, well, well, you know, as long as I don't have to do it, I'm good. He prayed and I walked away. Probably a month goes by and this guy comes looking for me. Same guy that prayed for me comes looking for me. Now I don't know how he found me. Now, like I could assume it's because of the cars I drove. He seen my car, and, and, and he found the car. And he says, uh, hey, man, you know, uh, uh, I just came to see how you were doing and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right. So I figured I'd get rid of him. You know, every time he'd come, I'd smoke a joint in front of him, you know, blow the smoke his way. <sighs> you know. He's a pastor in the fellowship, too, and uh, Alfredo Barron. And... Uh, I would go out there with the beer in my hand. So he kept on doing this for a while. on it. But every time he would leave, he'd go, can I pray for you? Go for it. Didn't do nothing the first time. You sure ain't going to do nothing the second time. You know what I mean? And uh, so eventually he, ended up, he invites me to his house for a cookout. But the cookout was just a, the hook. You know? He says, but first, we got to go to church, bro. I said, well, I don't know. I have to ask my wife because I don't think she really wants to go to your church, bro, because she's Catholic. <laughs> you know? I asked my wife, and of course, she says yes. So we end up going to church. And uh, I remember walking into the church. Now, you got to understand, I just came out on the cover of the newspaper, so everybody had seen me on the newspaper. Uh, there was a couple of people in the church that I had threatened to kill years ago. Uh, there was a guy that, that works for a, a paint shop that I uh, had pulled out everybody out of the paint shop. There's a Mako paint shop. I pulled everybody out, managers and everybody, and threatened to kill them if they didn't paint my car right the fourth time. And uh, so the people are looking at me already, you know what I'm saying, different. I didn't want to sit down because every time I'd sit down, I'd have these crazy people praying for me, you know. I uh, I thought they were crazy. I didn't think I was crazy, you know. And so I would come into the church and, and uh, I would cuss these people out. My wife would tell me, please don't do that. Now they're doing witchcraft, <laughs> especially when they're speaking in tongues, you know, they trip me out. Yeah. You know. Because, you know, in our world, we think we hear, we hear chanting when we hear, you know, the devil trying to mimic God that allows fear into people when they really hear, hear people speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. And so that's what was happening. So I got to the point that I, uh, if I would go to church with her, I wouldn't sit down. I would stand against the wall. And so... One day I was outside my house and I was smoking a joint and I remember yelling at God. I remember cussing God out. I remember calling him names. I remember saying, where were you when I was a child? Where were you when I was molested? Where were you when my mother got murdered? Where You know what I mean? I, everything that, you know, we want to blame everything on God. And so... 
at that point in my life, I just, uh, you know, I just wanted some answers. Why I was living the life I lived. Why my life was so messed up. And uh, I remember the following day going to church. And I remember Pastor Marty Carnegie was preaching and he would look my way and he'd keep on preaching and then he'd look, keep, you know, he'd look at my way again, continue to preach. And uh, I'm looking at him and you, you got to understand, uh, I have this, 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 he, he, I have some kind of hatred towards uh, uh, black people because a black man had killed my mom. And even though one of my best friends is black, you know, that, that, that's where I was, you know what I mean? And then I was like, you know, wh what is he looking at? You know what I mean? Do I know him from somewhere? You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking all these crazy things. And then I remember him calling me out in the middle of a service. So he stops the service right in the middle. And I'm like, you know. And he says, I have to do something now. And when he said that, he, he, he looks at me and he points at me and he says, you. You know, he says, come here. And, you know, I, I, in my mind, you know, I, I don't care. I'm going to be cool. You know what I mean? I'm going to play it cool. I was stoned out of my mind. You know what I mean? So I was just kind of like, who, I mean, who's going to notice? Who's going to tell me anything? Like, I don't care. I don't know these people, you know? And I remember walking up to him. And I remember these were the words he said to me. He says, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know what it means. He says, but you know what it means. And God knows what it means. And so he leans over and he says something in my ear. I don't even know what he said. I can, uh, to this day, I don't remember. I wish I did. He said something in my ear. And when he said these words, I remember getting a flashback of all the bad things I had done. Like in a second, everything. And then I remember just standing back because it was like real quick, you know. But everything, it was everything was clear. I remember looking at him, and then in my mind, I thought, bad high. <laughs> you know, because we're always looking for an excuse. You know, God does things, and we, we're always looking for an excuse, so I'm looking for an excuse. And he says to me, the same way people follow you for the devil. Now, you got to understand, this man don't know me. He doesn't know people that follow me, but yet everywhere I'd go, I'd have 10, 12, 14 guys following me. He says, the same way people follow you for the devil, they're going to follow you for Jesus. And I started to laugh. He says, I don't think you understand. He says, but you have a calling to preach the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so I remember looking at him and I said, are you done? And I walked away. And he just laughed. You know, Marty does that. He just laughs. I remember going back to that wall and standing against that wall. And as I was standing against that wall... He continued to preach. And, you know, you, you think about it, you know, why, why would he stop in the middle of a service? But it's because God had a plan, you know, because at that moment when he, when he started to preach, it's like all eyes went back to him. And everybody, like I didn't, like that never happened. Like that little walk never happened. Like him telling me would never happen. I went back and I stood against the wall. And as I'm standing against the wall, now I'm talking to God, you know? And I started to laugh. I remember I started to laugh 
And I remember telling God, I said, is that all you got? I said, is that all you got? I said, if you're the God that these people believe in, you will stop me from touching my wife because I was very abusive. I said, you will stop me from using drugs. You will stop me from drinking. You will take all this bitterness, this hate out of my heart because I don't want it anymore. And if you do, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And when I said those words, I remember something hitting me in the back of my knees and I fell on the ground and I started to worship God. At that moment, I remember everybody, I mean, I couldn't tell you how many people I looked like. I looked like I had the football, you know what I mean? Everybody's piled up praying for me. And I wept. And I wept until all that pain was gone. Until all that from when I was a little boy, seven years old, was gone. And I got up from that place. I remember getting up and I wasn't stoned anymore. I remember looking around and everything looked so different, so beautiful. I remember I could see the colors of the flags look so clear. I remember walking out the door with my wife and my kids and it was nighttime and I, I bet I could hear birds chirping. I could hear, I could see the trees moving. I mean, it was, and to me, even though I had been around all that, I, I had never seen it. I never paid attention to it. It never meant anything. But I knew that God had done something. I knew that some, there was something different. Because I didn't feel all that pressure anymore. I didn't feel all that weight anymore. It was just something totally, totally, totally different. And I remember as we were walking out, I, I pulled my cigarettes out of my pocket and I handed them to Roxy and I said, I'm done. And she says, what do you mean you're done? I said, I'm done. I'm never going back. Now, I, I just prayed. I, I don't know. You know, I just walked out of there. I just prayed. I don't, you know. And I remember she started to laugh. Not of joy, but she doubt. <laughs> and she says, okay, I'll put them away for you. That's what she said. I remember getting home. And uh, I grabbed all my pipes I grabbed all my cocaine my weed and I showed my kids I said this is what your daddy does because they had never seen me get high and I remember you know they're looking at me they're little you know they don't understand but I knew that I needed to put myself in a place where I'd be accountable and I broke these pipes I started to step on the drugs and you know throw them on the dirt and step on them I remember going inside the house and grabbing my clothes. And I had, you know, I've never been in prison in my life. 
But people had gone to prison and they would come out and they'd say, here, Frank, I did this for you. And for some reason or another, God gave me an understanding that these things had a spirit behind it. I grabbed all my clothes and I started to throw it in the trash. I uh, had a long ponytail all the way down to my waist because my mother got murdered. I, the only thing I believed in was the Virgin of Guadalupe. Because I'd grown up in L.A., you know, I was Chicano, this is a thing, you know. And I had made a promise to the Virgin. I let my hair grow, and uh, I remember I cut it off. And uh, I went home, and, and I said, hey, babe, come here. She was taking the baby a bath, and I put it in her hands. And I would always tell her the day I cut my hair is the day I die. I committed suicide the year before. She's freaked out. She started crying, and she's thinking I'm going to kill myself. I said, no, the old me's gone. I'm done. She packed up and left. You know, I went to work, and I came home to an empty house. She thought that I was crazy. But, you know, I had... I was a man of my word, and I made a commitment to God. I said, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. <coughs> and so my wife wouldn't talk to me. She wouldn't answer my calls. And when she did, all we did was argue. <laughs> so then I had gotten to the point in my life where I would... At that time, uh, we had pagers, you know. <laughs> I would disconnect the phone to the house, and I'd shut off my pager. That way I wouldn't respond to her calls because all we were doing was arguing. And so it got to the point where I, was, I wasn't answering her calls. And I would come home from church, and there'd be a little note on the fence, and I'd look at it, and it'd be like, hi, I came to see you. You know what I mean? And then there was a couple of ladies in the church that Roxy had grown up with since they were little. And, and they, they, they were like, is that Roxy? Yeah. So when she had moved out, they would come and tell me, Roxy called me. She wanted to know if you were still in church. And so, you know, it just showed me that, that she still cared, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, I didn't know anything about fasting. <coughs> I tell everybody fasting to me was we didn't have anything to eat. We ran out of food stamps, you know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> and uh, I remember I, I, I asked a couple of questions. and People told me what needed to be done. And I remember fasting. I remember fasting my first day. I remember. My second day, I speaking in tongues. All this at home, not even at, you know at church, just at home. They had already prayed for me at church, and I didn't even speaking in tongues there. But when I was at home, I'm speaking in tongues and I'm laughing and crying, speaking in tongues. My kids are like, "What's wrong with you, Dad?" And they're laughing too. Cause they didn't know if they should laugh or cry too, and mm -hmm. you know, because I had my four daughters with me. I said, I, "There's nothing wrong, baby." I um. Uh, I was on the third day, I remember praying, and I said, Lord, if it's meant to be for me and my wife to be together, show me. Just give me a sign. 
Give me some kind of hope. It was a Wednesday night. I got there early. Made sure that I got got some prayer in, you know. And, and when I walked in, I went to go put my Bible where I was going to sit. And the first thing I see is my wife with that friend of hers sitting in the front row. I remember I walked up to her and and as I was walking up to her, God was speaking to me and he says, All you're God it's like God would tell me exactly what I needed to do. All you're gonna do is walk up to her and kiss her on the forehead and walk away. He says, I need to work on her. And so I did. I did. I was obedient. I remember uh asking her and as time goes by I Asked her to come back home, and she said she wouldn't come back home because that house was demon possessed. My roof caved in, big old storm roof caved in. I was forced to move out. I had my four daughters, nobody would help me because now I'm not a drug dealer. Now I have no more money. Now, you know what I mean? I'm not supplying the parties. My dad rejected me, my sister, everybody rejected me. And I moved into this guy's laundry room. He offered me a laundry room. It was a big laundry room. It was a laundry room. I remember putting a little bunk bed in there and a little futon. And my daughters and me would sleep on there. We had a little milk crate with a little black and white TV. And that's what we would watch. <laughs> As time went by, I one day I heard a knock at the door. and I answered the door. My wife was standing there with my other three kids at the time. And I said, what are you doing here? She says, I talked to Ed, which was the guy where I was staying at his house. She said, and I told him that I was going to come in and move in here with you. I said, you can't do that. I said, you have a family. You have a good home. I said, just stay with them. And she says, no, I'm coming to be with you. She moved in with me, and uh, <coughs> we had nowhere to go. The guy that I was staying at his house, he uh, uh, had some girl he was sleeping around with from the church, and I had caught them in the act, but I didn't. To me, it didn't matter because I didn't know nothing about I didn't, I didn't even know the Bible. I didn't know nothing about the fornication or adultery. You know what I mean? So to me, it was normal. It was like, oh, just your girlfriend. You know what I mean? But he knew he was in the wrong, so he threw me out of his house. Mm. I asked my dad. I said, Dad, can I come and stay at one of your apartments? Because my dad owned an apartment complex. <coughs> he says, you can stay for one night. You know? I'd supported all these people. I'd bought them cars. I'd paid paid their bills and fill up their refrigerators with food and and nobody could help me now and that night some lady called me that didn't even know me she heard about me because of another guy that worked with me and uh, she says come to my house I went to her house and she says uh I have a house but it's been abandoned go look at it and <coughs> see if you want to move in there 
I went down there to go look at it. The house had been abandoned. Cats were living in it. No windows. But I needed somewhere to go. I took it. Ripped out the carpet and put plastic on the windows and got a little can of paint and we would touch up little things just to make it look decent. As time went by, I started to tile the house and clean the backyard and find all the windows in the backyard and put the windows on and it started to become home. And it didn't matter that we didn't have all the luxuries. I mean, we couldn't even turn on the utilities because so many people had lived there that the utilities had been changed so many times that they didn't even want to turn them on. We had to put like a $1,500 deposit. I didn't have that money. I fixed the house, and as I fixed it, the lady would come. That lady never, she goes for six months, I'm going to charge you no rent. Just fix the place, and then after that, we'll, we'll work it out. So I made the house look like a house. She says, you do tile, Frank? I said, yes. She goes, come and tile my house. I remember after I had finished with her house, some time had gone by, and I heard a knock at the door. And uh, I had ran, out, ran away because I was so used to running because it was always, somebody came and knocked at my door. It wasn't because they were visiting. It was most likely it was the cops and they were coming for me, you know? So I was ready to jump over the fence and my wife calls me. She goes, there's this lady here who wants to talk to you. She says, are you Frank Romero? I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, you know Paola? I said, yeah. She goes, she's the owner of this house. Uh, you know, I told her, she's, I go, yeah, she's the owner of this house. And she said, well, she says that you did some work at her house and you've done some work here, so you're going to assume the loan. You're taking over the house. I said, but I can't afford it. I have no good credit. She goes, well, she's code signed for you. She goes, and all you got to do is sign here. And the house is yours. You pay the, play, pay the closing costs. And she goes, I'm only going to charge you half which at the time was like 500 bucks. And so we agreed to it. And that same day, I went to my father-in-law's and I said, hey, Richard, I, I need some money. And I told him the situation. And he says, craziest thing, man. I've been selling this motorcycle for the longest time. Nobody's been wanting to buy it. And right before you got here, I sold it. He goes, here, here's the money. You know, the lady shows up with the paperwork. My wife calls me crying. Shows up with the paperwork for our house. Bunch of food and gifts for the kids. We had nothing. And with an envelope full of money, she had taken a collection in Century 21. You know, and... Made our house a home. You know, we just celebrated our 32 years of being married. And, you know, if it wasn't for God, none of this would have happened. So how old were you when uh, you had that moment where you cried out to God? How old were you then? I was 29 years old. You're 29. 
And so at that moment, it was a radical change. Everything. Everything changed. Everything changed. Everything. Wow, that's amazing. That's I, 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 didn't, I didn't go through any withdrawals. I didn't go through any nothing. It was just, to, to me, it was amazing because uh, God set me free. So even just, uh, I mean, because obviously those 29 years you grew up, you know, angry, bitter, violent, just all these negative emotions and, you know, personas, like, and it was just all gone. It was all gone. Wow, that's amazing. You know, God, God, God completely set me free. It's like they say, you know, God, you know, God forgives, the world doesn't, mm -hmm. but God forgives, you know. You know, I still run into people now that know me from way back when, and if they owe me money or whatever, they're trying to run away, <laughs> but I'm trying to tell them that not to worry about it, you know what I mean? Because you know. they still think I'm the same person that I used to be. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, right before, right, right, years after we got gotten saved, this was years later, uh, I had taken the kids to go to go see the monster trucks. And there was a guy there that I had, I was trying to kill years ago. And uh, when we get there, I, I, I see him as I'm walking down the aisle. I could see him sitting on top with his family. And so what I did is I, walked my wife and my kids and then we went up towards him and then I sat down and I gave him my back mm -hmm. because I figured if he was going to do something that was his time you know but I was trying to show him that I wasn't afraid of him and that mm -hmm. you know what I mean he's the one he was more worried about me than me of him and uh after sitting there for a while I told my wife you know what? I'm gonna take the kids down and let them ride the you know they have rides on the monster trucks and when I got them some tickets where they can get on. And I came back to sit down with my wife. And when I came back, she says, hey, Frank, did you know that guy that was sitting behind us with his family? I said, yeah. I said, his name is Danny. He goes, when you left with the kids to go get on the truck, he came and tapped me on the shoulder and asked me, is that Frank Romero? And I said, yes. And him and his family took off. You know, because... People don't have the understanding of what true salvation is. They don't have the understanding of what God really does. When God sets us free, he truly sets us free. Mm -hmm. You know, we, that bitterness, that hate, that anger is no longer there. You know, um, not that we're perfect. We're far from being perfect. But we become more Christ-like. You know, that emptiness has been filled. That void is, is no longer there, you know. And so we learn how to love people, you know, instead of hate people, mm -hmm. you know. And then the craziest thing about it is that a couple of years later, he shows up to the church. And when there was an altar call, I went and sat next to him. And as soon as I called his name, he looked at me and he started to cry. And I said, you need to understand that I am no longer the person I used to be. And I prayed with him, and he accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, people, uh, we as Christians need to show people that Jesus loves them and that there is hope. You know, they say, how will, how can I serve a God I can't see? Well, they see him in you, mm. you know, and your testimony and the things that you do and how you act. You know, the man that I shared earlier, the man that I stabbed in the throat eight times, today is serving God. He's been serving God for 15 years, and I stabbed him in the throat. He tells people, if it wasn't because I know that this guy was the devil himself, he goes, and I seen what God has done in his life, he goes, I wouldn't be serving God today. And I talk to him almost every day, wow. you know, because that's what God does. God restores what the enemy has taken. 
God gives us in return. Everything that the devil has taken from us, God will give back to us. You know, and even though I had gone through what I had gone through growing up, at that time I wasn't too happy about it, you know. But now I look back and I say, man, if, you know, I went through what I went through and now I could use it to glorify God's name, why not? Yep. Why not? So <clears throat> I have some uh, some questions just to go back uh, and kind of tie up some loose ends. Um, just real quickly, kind of go through some stuff. Um, okay, so your your father, is he still around now? Or? No, my father passed away about 10 years ago. About 10 years, okay. So um, after you got saved, how was that relationship with your father? <coughs> it was good. It was good. He, uh, uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, go hang out with him and I try to be an example to him. You know, he accepted Christ before he passed oh, okay, away. Great. Um, you know, he lived a Jehovah witness life for a long time because he was allowed to drink. So, you know what I mean? So that was his thing. And, uh, but you know, he accepted Jesus and, and I believe that he's in heaven, you know, um, but we didn't have a perfect relationship, but we had a good relationship. Okay, that's good. And then, um, <clears throat> so as part of, uh, this restoration in your life of, that God was, you know, working in your life. Um, when it came to your mom, uh, did you have, I mean, obviously I'm sure you had some bitterness and some anger against the guy who did it. Um, was that forgiveness? Was that just boom set in at that moment too? Or was that something you had to kind of work through later? No, I, 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 when I got saved, I forgave him. I, I went down there to go kill the guy, mm. you know, but, uh, a lot of things happened. Cops got interfered. My brother, my brother got loud, so they put the guy under protective custody. Uh, before I was saved, my plan was to kill the guy, to, to get rid of him, because I felt that that was my duty as a son, as the older brother. You know what I mean? Um, and so, but when I, got, when I got saved, I actually prayed for the man. You know what I mean? Because... Um, you know, I, I really don't know what happened. You know what I mean? I just hear, well, you know, she opened the door. He was going to shoot my mom's boyfriend. She got in the way, and then he shot her. And I don't really know what happens, but all I know is that when I gave my life to Christ, I had to put every everything, not just, I couldn't pick and choose. I had to put everything in God's hands, you know, and that's really where it's all at. Um, real quick, Pastor, did that guy go to prison? Uh, yes, they gave him, um, the guy was like in his 70s. So they got him for manslaughter, which in the state of California is, is uh, eight years. Oh, wow. But it's two for one, so you only serve four. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know. Wowzers. Um, so looking back at your life, did you, you know, obviously you were a violent individual. Um, caused a lot of chaos and I'm sure harm. Do you ever look back at your life with regret? And be like, man, and like about the people that you hurt or anything like that? Well, you know, there was a time in my life when I did, okay? <clears throat> but I noticed that that was just keeping me from doing God's will. So part of the, part of, part of the restoration is you forgiving yourself? Yes. Yep. Now, there's, there's certain people that I wish I could run into and just say I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I've had that opportunity to run into certain people, certain young ladies, certain guys, and say, I'm sorry. And it blows their mind, you know, when they see me say, I'm sorry to them. But it, it, it's just part of what 
I believe that that's just what uh, part of our salvation. It's part of what God's doing, God, part of the restoring of our lives or our hearts. You know, when I was in California, pastoring in California, when I was leaving, I was selling some of my stuff. I was real bitter towards cops. I hated cops because, you know, in the L.A. County, it was just like very a lot of crooked cops. And when I was selling my stuff, uh, a guy called and said that he wanted my stuff, so I needed to drive down to another town to, to go take it to him. As I got there, I got off the truck, so I see these two white guys uh, by a garage and two ladies and older. There were older people. And uh, I got off, and I started walking towards him. And I remember this guy, he just kept on staring at me. And... Uh, and so I'm walking up to him, and then I, you know, I shake one of the guy's hands, the lady's hands. I went to go shake his hand. And as I went to go shake his hand, he goes, where are you from? I go, I'm from Tucson, bro. I said, but I pastored in Long Beach. He goes, no. He goes, what gang are you from? I said, oh, I'm from Harbor City. Man, I grew up in the projects. He goes, what do they call you? I go, they call me termite. And he grabs my hand and he hugs me. He says, I'm so sorry. I said, for what? He goes, I remember you. I remember you. I just want to apologize for everything I've done to you. When you were little, you know, we'd get abused by the cops. And I remember, I said, don't worry about it. It's all under the blood, brother. He says, you don't understand. He goes, I've been saved for so many years. He goes, and I, when I seen you, I remembered you. And all I wanted to say was, I'm sorry. You know, and I really believe that God puts people in our lives like that because there's certain people that we have to say we're sorry to, mm -hmm. you know. Not because if we don't, we're not saved. I believe that we have to because that's part of maturity in our Christian walk. Mm -hmm. It's part of our growth, you know? <clears throat> I guess uh, I'd say one of the last things is um, just what ha just to resolve with what happened with the gangs. The ones, you know, after you left, you went to Tucson, did they still have the, did the green light ever go away? Were they ever fine with you? Uh, or? I was actually uh, preaching for Pastor Chayo Perez up in New Mexico. Yeah, he's got a crazy story, yeah. story too. And uh, <coughs> and as I was there in, in, in New Mexico, and me and Chayo have been friends for years, and um, I was sharing my testimony. We had gone to go do the gang play that wants uh, to die. Okay. <laughs> And as we're there doing the play, I'm, I, I share my testimony. And when I share my testimony, I get off the, the stage where on top where I'd like build YMCA, and I walk down this big stage. And when I walk down, there's a guy at the bottom of the stairs, and he's like an old cholo, you know. And he goes, "Where are you from, bro?" I said, "I'm from Tucson." I go, "No, you're not." I said, "Really?" I said, "Where am I from?" You're from Harbor City. I said, really? Now, you got to understand, where I grew up, 90% of it is projects. And there's only like five little blocks. Everything is projects, government apartments. 
I'm maybe all exaggerating, but it's about 10,000 apartments. And uh, he says, I go, do you know me? And he says, I think so. I said, who are you? He goes, they call me Boxer. I said, Sleepy, Sleepy's your brother, right? He's like, yeah. I, said, I remember fighting your brother a long time ago. I go, do you, do you know who I am? I go, they call me Termite, bro. He goes, you're that vato from that murder. He goes, you know there's a hit on you? He goes, and the dude that has your hit is here in Albuquerque. I said, really? I said, well, here's my business card. How give me a call? And I walked away. There was a youth rally going on in the Tucson church six months later. And um, as I'm there, I'm trying to make a long story shorter. <laughs> um, uh, I go into the bathroom. And um, there's a guy in there with a cane, with a little cholo brim, you know. His face is all tatted. Arms are all tatted. And uh, so we're in there using the bathroom, whatever, you know. You know, those guys we could talk in the bathroom. I said, where you from, bro? He goes, you don't remember me, bro? I said, no, I don't remember you. He goes, it's me. It's your homeboy, Mosco. Now, he had gone to prison for a murder 25 years. (laughs) And, uh. And he goes, why don't you tell me what happened that night, bro? So, all right. So I explained to him what had happened. And so a few months later, I'm at a, there's going to be a, a conference going on in Tucson. <coughs> and the guy who has my hip, there's two guys, one's in LA, the other one's in New Mexico. So the one in, in L.A. had gotten into a real bad car accident where a semi had hit him and threw him over the bridge, and he ended up being a paraplegic. And if anybody would have ki- tried to would have killed me, it's him. And I know it would have because he was very bitter towards me. And when he was in the hospital, I would have them go down there and put the phone to his ear. And I would pray for him, but he wouldn't tell me a word. I mean, he could talk. He just didn't tell me a word. I prayed for him until he came out of the hospital. And uh, so I flew the guy, one of the the guy in that had my hit, and I flew some of my homeboys in. They all came in, and at that time, there was something else that had happened because one of my compadres, he was from White Fence, and he had gotten murdered also, and it was something I needed to settle with that also because uh, his son was my godson, and I needed to take care of some stuff. Like I said, I've never been in prison. I've never been involved with all that politics stuff. I was, I grew up in the streets. I was a gang member. I was from Harbor City. I was a Sudanio, and but I'd never gotten involved in all that. But they were, so they 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 were all there, and and I remember telling my wife, she says. What are you doing? She says, I said, I'm flying these guys in. She goes, why? She goes, aren't you afraid they're going to kill you? I said, well, didn't you tell me to trust in God? (laughs) She goes, and where are they going to stay? I said, here. (laughs) You know? 
And so as they came, uh, they got to the house. This friend of mine, uh, you know, I don't. He he came and and, and uh, he says, "Where are they at?" He goes, "So there's two guys. These guys are, uh, they're 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 involved in in, in the politics and and they said, uh, we'll take care of it for you, bro. Don't worry." I said, no, nah, that's not the way we do things anymore. It's not the way I do things anymore. And so we sat down and we talked. And I explained to them because they always thought I had something to do with the murder. And It was a Father's Day. It was Father's Day. I remember it was Father's Day. <laughs> because my wife, I had ordered a bunch of food and we're sitting on the table at my house. And we're all eating and, uh, and we're talking about everything that that was going on and what was happening and my kids would come you know I got nine kids so they would come hey dad I brought you this and they bring me a gift and they bring me a a card and I would read the card and, and you know just the words that my kids would say you know you're, thank you daddy for everything we love you you're a great father you're a great this and you know and I would pass it around I'd say read it and then as the kids would come, I would read it, and I'd pass it, and they would read it. And by the time we were done, and they were done reading the cards, they were broken. You could see that they wanted what I had. And before they left, you know, they had prayed and asked Jesus into their heart. I believe one of them is pastoring now. He's not a, not part of the fellowship, but he's pastoring <laughs> I have a couple of other friends that are going. I got one friend that's going to pastor uh, uh, up in Vegas, Pastor Lamb's church, and you know some of his kids are going there. Uh, a couple of them are going to Pastor Strutt's church, but you know, uh, God, God, God knows what He's doing. God redeems, you know. Um, in the process of me getting saved, that was something that God had put in my heart. He says, "Start praying." For your homeboys. Now, you know, God doesn't speak slang like we do, but he, does, you know, he, he, he knows what he's doing. He says, start praying for your neighborhood. Start praying for your homeboys. And as I started to do that, they started to get saved. And when I went to California to pastor out there, the same homeboy that was there when I got jumped in, was, which he was a veterano, you know, one of the older homies, was the same one that whispered in my ear and told me, you need to get out of here before they kill you, man. These guys are going to kill you. Was the first one that called me and says, you know, this is, I can't even remember what name he gave me because, you know, we don't know each other's names. All we know is nicknames. He says, I'm a counselor, da, 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 da. If you could please give me a call. And I remember I called him and I said, yes, sir. Oh, you know, well, this is Frank Romero. I was calling you. To, I just want to return your call. And he says, I know you don't know me by this name, bro. He goes, but it's me. It's your homeboy, Bear. Because I just wanted to tell you that there was always something different about you. Because I heard that you're pastoring here now, man. He goes, and I've always noticed that there was something different about you. He goes, and now we know what it is. He goes, I need you to go pray for someone. One of my homegirls was dying, and so I got into the hospital and and uh, 
I had prayed with this guy and that was out in the street and he was an Aryan brother. Big old tall white guy, looked like white herb with old mustache and and uh I said, Randy, I'm taking you with me. So we're gonna walk into this place and there's gonna be gang members everywhere, bro. And some of them may still wanna kill me. And he goes, Pastor, I got your back. I said, We're gonna go in there, bro. We're gonna be a testimony for Jesus. We're not gonna go and be who they are. We're gonna be who we are. I remember walking in there and I prayed with about 150 people in this place at one time. We did a massive prayer. I remember when I was walking in, everybody was like, Hey, Frank, what's up? Long time no see. I remember praying with my homegirl and I prayed with everybody there and I left that place and, you know, I, I've never gone back. You know, I, 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 needed, I needed to do that. That needed to be part of my salvation. That needed to be part of my walk. You know? And, you know, I've been serving God now for 27 years and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful. You know? and I've been through the storm. I've been through some big storms. I'm going through a storm right now. But you know what? My eyes are on Jesus. Pastor, how can you? My eyes are on Jesus. You know, my eyes are on Jesus. I try not to look at the waves. I like try not to look at the wind, you know, because I know that God's in control of everything. So obviously, I mean, you got a pretty crazy life, crazy story. I'm sure we can talk for another two hours. Yes, sir. We haven't even talked about, <laughs> uh, I'm curious about, uh, your church now on the reservation, just on everything you deal with there. You know, there's lots of stuff, ministerial stuff we haven't talked about. But um, I think, you know, what you've said is very powerful. Um, definitely can reach a lot of people, um, hopeless, you know, people that feel lost and unloved. Um, kind of the emotions you went through. Obviously, the life experience you went through is pretty unique, but the emotions you went through are pretty common. You know what I mean? Yes. So. You know, and, and it's really, you know, to be honest with you, it's really helped me, you know, everything that I went through, you know, like even when I pastored in California. Um, Can you pull the I, mic closer? Closer. When, 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 I, when I was living in California, I, you know, I was able to, to show a lot of the guys there how to love, you know what I mean? You know, it, it, and, you know, it, so it was, to me, it was all a learning experience. And then when I, you know, I evangelized for a while and um, probably for about three years. And then I went to, uh, I took over the church in, in the Autumn Nation. Um, I, um, the first thing that, that, that I did was show them that I loved them. You know what I mean? Because now I know what true love is, you know. And um, I'm able to talk to the people in my church. And, you know, it's not like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't even feel weird to tell them, hey, I love you. You know what I mean? You know, uh, when I'm done talking to a sister, counseling somebody, say, hey, I love you. You know what I mean? And they go, we love you too, Pastor. You know, uh, because it's, it's, to me, it's so important, you know. Um, well, I had gone in, uh, to do a funeral, and so you got to understand that, you know, the Autumn Nation is very big. It's 2.3 million acres. And so there's different districts. And I had gone into another district to go do a funeral for someone that didn't come to church, so it, but it's very big. <clears throat> and so I go down there with some of my people, and I go do this funeral, 
and um, you know they always feed you, you know, and uh, and so they always want to make sure they feed the pastor first. And uh, when I reached out to grab my food, there was a little old lady uh, handing me my food, and and she noticed she seen my hands. And the first thing that came out of her mouth was she goes, "You're you're the pastor that everybody talks about." You're the pastor that came out of the same kind of lifestyle as we did, you know, and that means so much to me. It really does, because my grand—I have a granddaughter that's that's native. She's the Otomalso, and uh, when she was born is when I took over the church. You know, every time she turns a year old, that's how long I've been in the church. So it just—it means so much to me to be able uh, to be an be able to make an impact in people's lives. You know, you, you, you look at yourself and you say, how can God use me? You know, how can God use a man that has no education, a, a man that never went to school, a man that doesn't know how to read the Bible, a man that, you know, and, and, and God said, I can use anybody. You know, my pastor had said to me years ago, he had called me out in and, and, and a service and he said to me, he says, you think that God's not going to use you because you don't know how to read. He goes, but the same way God used Moses, God's going to use you. You know, and um, I believe that. I believe that God's been using me. In Absolutely. I don't, I don't let it affect me in any kind of way. You know what I'm saying? If I don't know how to say a word, I'll figure it out. You know what I mean? You know, I was trying to figure out how to say the Euphrates River. What is it called? Euphrates. Yeah, that river. <laughs> you know, because I want to be able to explain to people, hey, yeah. because, I, I, you know, I, 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 I do do my homework. I do want them to understand that, that, you know, God is real, that he's coming soon, and that he can restore what the enemy has taken. That's what I want people to understand. I want them to understand that this isn't about religion. This is about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, that you don't have to be out there looking for love in all the wrong places, that you can find love in Christ, that he can restore what the enemy has taken, you know, and, and that's one of the things I love the people in my church. They, you know, I, I preach to them and every time I preach to them, it's like, you know, I'm doing this revival right now for you guys. You guys, you know, you see me every two, three years, let's say. And, and, and you know, yeah, it's, I could put up with them for a week, you know, <laughs> but these people see me all the time yeah. and I can make them laugh every single time. I can make them cry every single time. You know what I mean? And, and, and you know they 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 understand me and I understand them and they know that 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 I'm there because I love them, you know. Mm-hmm. Pastor, you know, I, I drive an, an hour. My church is an hour away. It's a, I, it's all highway. I got to drive a whole highway. I got to get. That's without. That's just getting. I got to get through the city before that hour starts, you know. And I go down there and I preach the word of God. And then when I'm done, I drive all the way back home and, and I make sure my wife stays home for she can get some rest. And then the evening I drive back by myself. And, and, and they're like, how can you do this? How can I not do this? You know, Jesus did it for me. He walked. I got a car. You know what I mean? He walked. He was willing to give his life for me no matter uh, how messed up I was, you know. You know, he gave his life for me. Now, how can I not do for his children? How can I not do with the people that he has entrusted into me? You know? Powerful, powerful stuff, man. (laughs) I mean, jeez. I think it's one of the longest podcasts we've ever recorded, right? 
Uh, it's uh, right at it's over two hours. Uh, that's and then there's a lot more that we can say. Well, I try to shorten it up. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, is there any final final <laughs> thoughts, final things, Daniel? Before we close it out, no. Well, uh, powerful, powerful words, Pastor. We're so excited about having you here and the revival that we're doing. I mean, when this thing drops, it'll be two months since we recorded. Uh, but uh, just, uh, I mean, thank you for your time. And sharing this, and I know there's a lot more, and maybe we can find a way to get more stuff, uh, uh, you know, more of your testimony out there. And um, but we're gonna thank you for being here. We're going to sign off. Me here and uh, uh, Luis Perez, aka Guicho Breach, and my uh, my co-host producer uh, Daniel Martinez. Amen. And so we'll see you on the next one. We're out. Peace. Our relationship still didn't grow. It still didn't. It wasn't the main focus. Now looking back, it wasn't his main focus, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I see now that the way that my father parented me and my siblings, his main responsibility that he saw, that he felt he had, was just to provide. And, and you see that with many men out there today, mm -hmm. you know. But in my, I saw that firsthand in my father. And um, so you didn't have a close relationship with him. No, not at all. And um, in Philippines, you know, for so many years you could, you know, say that excuse, oh, you know, he worked abroad, understandably, because, you know, there's not much out here in Philippines. Mm -hmm. But when we moved to America, still, there wasn't anything. So at that point, I was like, okay, dad, you know, what are we doing here? Yeah. You know, it, it's a part of my, my life that I'm just now starting to uh, even come into terms with. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, that really happened. I can't run away from this anymore. Did you block it out of your memory for a while? I did. I tried to at least, mm -hmm. but I couldn't. And whenever the uh, memories will pop up, I'm like, man, am I always going to run away from this? Is there, o is there ever going to be an opportunity where uh, this is going to be handled, this is going to be dealt with? Did your parents know about it, what was going on? Or? Not then. It I, I don't know. On, or? I don't even know if they did. You know, um, I brought it up a few months ago when my family came here to San Antonio. Oh, so just recent. That's very yeah, it, recent. It, it, it's recent, you know, so, so it's still fresh. Yes. The yeah. way that it was brought up. Yeah. Looking back how my mind was, you know, so perverted. Corrupted. Yeah. It was so corrupted, bro. I remember, man, being in sixth grade in middle school. I was already lusting on women, on, on these young girls. You know what I mean? And I thought that was okay. I, I really thought that, that okay, this is just who I am. You know, and I'm like, God, help me. All the times I'm praying these prayers, my flesh is wanting the opposite. Mm -hmm. And though I'm torn, I could feel God's guidance. I could feel his protection over my life. You know, that kept me pure throughout to some extent, right? Pure, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. You know, throughout high school, mm -hmm. you know, I, I I tried to rebel, you know, and it led me astray. I, I remember I would just be in my room; it was just dark, and man, I was just I I was filled with so much depression, mm -hmm. so much darkness in there, and thoughts of suicide started rolling in. Oh wow! You know, and yeah. it's. It, it was, I was such in a depressive state, you know, that all my friends, 
had the same spirit. We, we all just mingled together, just all depressed bunch of teenagers. You know, after high school, we're all trying to find our way in life. You know, I remember there's a parking lot that we parked the rental in, and immediately we could hear music. I look up like this in the building behind me, and I see this big old window and naked women. You know, they're just having a party, just, just dancing around. You know what I mean? And my boy was like, okay, that's the place. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's the place. And so we go in. I'm like, man, you know what? It is what it is. I'm in Europe, you know. So what? What Jesus says at this point, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, all these years. I'm on vacation. <laughs> yeah. And so vacation spiritually too. You know, I could just pick it up later on. Man, but yeah, I, I followed through with it. That's where I lost my virginity, man. That's where it was. And I remember it was, uh, man, just even, I remember when I first shared this story to my wife, man, I, was, I never experienced panic attacks, bro. But in that moment that I was sharing to my wife, I had one. Like I could, I could see, and then depression came back stronger. Darkness, it was just glooming over me even stronger when we started uh, fornicating. And it came to a point where later on in our dating months, I was like, man, I can't do this. You know what I mean? I, I, um, I, I got tired of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I got tired of being depressed. I got tired of being robbed of, of the joy and the peace that God had. I would get so much um, sleep paralysis in those months. It's not even funny. It, it was almost like every other night. Oh, my goodness. I would wake up in the middle of the night. It was just I couldn't move, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. I grabbed my broomstick and I started smashing it right in front of her. She closed the door on me. She didn't want to see that. You know what I mean? I was just there. Just it was, it was in that moment. It really shocked me. I'm like, man, I didn't know I could rage like that because mm -hmm. all you never done that before. All these years, all my friends, oh, you're one of the most chill people. You talk so chill to you from California. And it just so happened I get stationed in California, you know. And um, so that really shocked me that I have the capability to rage out like that, mm -hmm. especially in front of my wife. I try to do all of this uh, tactic strategies to kick off this habit, mm -hmm. but I couldn't find the, uh, the willpower out of me to just walk out of it. I kept going back into watching, but in that moment, that season, that's when I really found deliverance. And that's when you finally broke that bondage. Uh, yeah, and, and it makes me it makes me see now that when it comes to deliverance, a person really has to want it. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? The person Absolutely. really has to want it, and, and a person who's struggling with an addiction, who keeps finding his way, her way back into it, is just be honest with yourself. You want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because if you really didn't, you know what I mean? God is willing to help you. He'll give you the strength to to uh, walk away from that. In that moment, that's where I ex experienced deliverance. I can still remember what Pastor preached. He was preaching about having a foundation built on Jesus, you know, and everything was speaking on into my life in that timely moment. Message. It was so timely, I tell you, because, you know, being in a new state, being a new and uh, trying to pursue God now. I just left the military. I don't even know what job I'm going to do next. I had HVAC lined up, but I didn't even have that already uh, working for me yet. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's so many uh, uncertainty up ahead, you know, and yet there's this sermon that says, whatever it is, build your life on Jesus. 
Man, it spoke so loudly in my heart because Praise leading God. up, even before we left California, I was like, God, I, I really need a, a church that you want for us. 